general nerdery. And we're back. That felt like the longest <laughs> commercial break of our goddamn lives. Oh my god. I, <laughs> I just had Boy Meets World flashbacks. And that was the longest time out I ever had I, after the sister <laughs> disappeared for an entire se season. Oh, see, I didn't have Disney as a kid, so I never, like, I don't think I ever actually saw a boy anymore. Um, hi, guys. Welcome to General Nerdery. We'll get to our why we were gone forever in a day in a second. But uh, in the meantime, I'm your General Zach. I'm Tyler. And as we mentioned a long, long time ago, this week we have with me my beautiful wife, Cece. Hi. That's Cece. <laughs> I'm pointing at her. I don't know why. I, I, I cannot break that habit. Last episode, we had promised... We Did we ever even do a, like, hey guys, no episode this week? Or I didn't check. No, I was going to at one point. And, and then we didn't. Yep, no, that's, that tracks. Uh, I we, did mention <laughs> it on Fried Squirms last week. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> on a completely different show. <laughs> we promised last week, we're like, hey, it's going to be our, like, one-year anniversary. Zach to suck with a thing for a year is a remarkable achievement. Uh, and then between... And then between, you biffed it at the last second. Yeah, fucking right. <laughs> between the move, and then you got an ear infection. And oh, tooth infection. Tooth infection, thank you. And then we both got quarantined, and I lost my voice. Neither of us had COVID, we're all okay. But I sounded like this. So a lack of and, internet for a bit. Oh, and oh. we still don't have internet at the apartment. Have, we still don't have internet. <laughs> Yep. Uh, I am really glad I have an unlimited data plan because otherwise, oof. Yeah, my phone bill would be outrageous. But we're here. We're back. We're back. We've, we're back. Now I've done a thing for over a year. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, we are going to talk a little bit about what comes up with year two, but we have a few things before that. First, my love, my darling, uh, hit us with your nerd credentials been a nerd probably my whole life i guess <laughs> uh, i've seen your childhood bedroom yes yeah i actually didn't have a lot of nerd friends growing up so i i'm glad i made it to adulthood where i actually found some nerd friends uh yo <laughs> nerd husband uh yeah i think like my first game boy game was pokemon and i'm still playing pokemon so there you go play a lot of tabletop rpgs Love Star Wars, love Star Trek, love so many, so many books. Yeah. Lots of Harry Potter, lots of Pokemon Go. I mean, she literally, I know she already mentioned Pokemon, but she literally has Pokemon Go in front of her. It's Kalos Week, guys. It is. <laughs> as we record this, Kalos Week is going on. There are new Pokemon out there. I need a Froakie real bad. Uh, I need a Froakie real bad. We need a Froakie. <laughs> we also now live 10 miles from the nearest town, so collecting yes. is a little harder than when there was, like, turn it on and there's five in your backyard it, at any given moment. As soon as you said Froakie, I'm... Popping up my Pokemon Go too, <laughs> in case one pops up while yeah, there, we're recording. There oh, are, the commercial break. No, I'm not. I'm not going to last that long. There are no Pokestops or gyms within sight of our house. Ooh. Um, and when my Pokemon buddy brings me gifts, it is from a good, like, four or five miles away. Like, I know what stops mm. he's bringing them from, and those are, like... A solid four or five miles away. I'm like, the wow. Lee Metcalf Wildlife Refuge. Exactly. Like, I'm like, you really What's funny as you, as you swing around and you see the stops in my area here, all but three of those popped up in the last four months. Yeah, they've added a bunch, which is nice. They didn't add any bright, in my yard. Bright side. <laughs> I mean, downside, there is no Pokestop there. Bright side, there is like three horses, two cows, a mule, a dog. 
five or six cats and like 32 peacocks. Like there is, we basically live in the safari zone, but there's just not a gym. Yeah, but not (laughs) as cool things happen when you throw balls at them. Yes. The dog likes it, but that makes it sound way more aggressive. (laughs) Cats like it. Well, maybe some of them, I don't know. We're not getting it back if that's the case. Anyways... Oh, fun. Um, what have we been ingesting this week? What have... <laughs> what have we been ingesting this month? Yeah. Uh, no, let's see. Uh, I'll, I'll start out. Mine's relatively easy. I got, I got three main things. Been continuing going and getting pretty close to finishing the main quest line on The Witcher 3. By that, I mean I'm not that very far on finishing the main quest line, but I have almost everything else out of the way, so nothing So you're not going to get distracted anymore. Yes, okay. That's, I have... The only game I kind of have like that anymore is uh, Skyrim, and I've never actually finished the Skyrim main quest line. I've been playing that game for a decade, There's but no... I get distracted every time. They're like, oh, go talk to... Like, so you have to go back up the mountain to talk to the Greybeards. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, fuck the Greybeards. <laughs> So I have not made it far into that game, but that's a different game. <laughs> um, I did my annual Django-a-thon in which I watched the 1967 Django, uh, 2004 Sukiyaki Western Django, and then uh, Tarantino's Django Unchained back to back to back. Is that all supposed to be the same character, or did he just steal the name Django? I've, I've never been clear on that. No. None of it's the same character. Um, People just when... like the name Django. When Django was released uh, in the late 60s in Italy, Italy had super, super, super lax copyright laws. Mm. And so pretty much anybody who wanted could make an unofficial sequel to Django just to capitalize off of the name success. And there are literally over 200 unofficial sequels to Django. (laughs) Also, let's be honest about it. Boba Fett's dad... Is an yeah. unofficial sequel to Django. Uh, <laughs> no, lots of characters are. Um, it's, it's, yeah. So all mostly just inspired by. Anyway. Uh, and then the other fun thing is I started in on uh, a brand new anime that Crunchyroll's putting out. I can't remember if I mentioned it on the show before when they first announced it or not. Times. But uh, they are doing their own original animation uh, based on Mesoamerican mythology. Oh, I've heard about oh, this. Oh, yeah. I think I saw trailers what for that, it and it's called? very cool. It's called Onyx Equinox. Yeah. Um, it's only three episodes in so far. Maybe four. I can't remember. we got to get internet again, my love. It's... <laughs> I haven't seen the latest one. I have seen the first two. If all you have is time to watch the first two, just wait, because you'll just be depressed. <laughs> one of those okay it's really good but um it's not pulling any punches it's mesoamerican mythology and there's already a lot of blood and a lot of sacrifice yeah <laughs> yeah very much impacting the main character i was very su- very surprised at how emotional the very first episode made me and it wasn't even necessarily in like the same way that Coco did, where I was like, oh, look, there's a fucking concha on the ofrenda. It was like, oh, wow, that really hurts. That sucks. <laughs> Why did you do that after such a nice montage? <laughs> um, digging it, though. And uh, I've been wanting to try to get more uh, into Mesoamerican mythology anyway, 
and completely forgetting that the series was even coming out, had spent an entire weekend looking through some of the different Aztec codices, and then was like, oh, look, look, it's a thing! <laughs> and um, they are putting way more detail into it than they need to be, which is amazing, since so, so little is known about this pantheon. Is and this a Crunchyroll original? It's an or? original. Um, they're making it out of uh, California. Seems like Crunchyroll is putting a lot of time and effort into their... Like, they, they don't really cheap out on their originals, from what I've seen, at least. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the animation style reminds me a lot of, like, uh, Last Airbender and Korra and stuff. I mean... It's just then really bloody and sad. <laughs> Murder. Oh, so it's Avatar. What's her name? Um, uh, Kyoshi. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. That was it. Yeah, that's pretty much it. My love. Um, well, we already mentioned it's Callous Week in Pokemon Go, so absorbing <laughs> <laughs> way too much Pogo. Um, Mandalorian, of course. My God, that's I spend way too much of my day thinking about Mandalorian. We don't have internet, as we mentioned, um, so Zach pulled out his DVDs of um, Batman Beyond, oh, so and that bad. has been very fun. Yeah. That show holds up remarkably well. Mm. Like, I knew it was still good and that I always enjoyed it, but I watched it and I'm like, wow, this is deep and dark. I mean, it's still Kids WB, but like... Right. Yeah. But they it's went been, places with it. Yeah. yeah. It's been really fun. Yeah. That Freeze episode, Mr. Freeze episode, is like the Aww. darkest fucking cartoon. <laughs> I felt so bad. They've had several episodes, as Zach and I discussed while watching it, where you feel really bad for the villain. Like, you connect with them and you're like, man, I just feel really bad for, for them. You and are like, not the bad guy in I am, this. Like, I know why you're like act, like acting out in the way you are, because you kind of got shit on. And like, <laughs> I kind of don't blame you for uh doing what you're doing like you need to stop but <laughs> <laughs> please stop murdering people but also, but also we'll pay for your therapy yeah this like, is not you just, your <laughs> yeah <laughs> most yeah. yeah for the most part all of those uh i am gonna mention i listened to the dadlands it's an adventure zone live show uh because I am running a Dadlands campaign one-shot at a holiday party that we're throwing online in a couple of days. Uh, and I needed to get the right level of sheer absurdity mm. for it. Uh, it's like an hour and a half long. It is the dumbest campaign I have ever sat down and listened to. But it's one of those that it knows what it, like it's trying to be, so it's good that it's dumb. It is about the post-apocalypse where only the dads are left for a hundred hundred years. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, it's so funny. It's so dumb. It's I, I love it. Um, I do have to say, I was bringing up the, the Batman Beyond reminded me of the one other thing that I probably should mention because I binged it all in like 12 hours and they did put out season four of Big Mouth and it might be my favorite. And it might not be. I'm not positive yet. <laughs> it was my favorite going through it, but I also see big holes while looking back at it. Ah, one of those. So, um... This is amazing. Think about it later. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazingly uncomfortably real, especially with the introduction of the anxiety mosquito. I mean, that's pretty... If I understand right, Big Mouth is pretty much just puberty the cartoon. Yeah, it's um, it's basically Inside Out, but Puberty Edition. 
Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> a whole lot to unpack in that sentence. Yeah. Ooh, and the show goes there with all of the unpacking. It is incredibly gross, but so <laughs> Yeah. I did watch it all in like 12 hours, so mm-hmm. I, I figured I should probably bring it up because I stayed up way too late getting that done. <laughs> Mentioned earlier, we are going into year two of the show, and I like being able to say of the show. Like, I don't know. The show. Oh, the show. Oh, you know, it, it just feels so real. Um... There are going to be some multiple large changes to how we're doing it because we've done this for a year and we've kind of figured out what we think works and doesn't. Uh, First, a small one first, we are going to be changing how the news runs after this week uh, because we found that we were easily getting distracted and doing way too many news articles at one time, and I make Tyler look up all of the new stuff on his own, and that is an unfair distribution of work on my part. (laughs) Uh, So we are going to be swapping to, Tyler came up with the name, the Fantastic Four of the Week. That's right. Are we going to explain? I mean, we're not doing it. We're not doing it today. No, but just we can do a quick run through because the name is mostly us being, you being clever. Uh, Yeah, I mean, so with the Fantastic Four of the Week, we'll have... A news item based on each of the members of the Fantastic Four. Uh, half being brought to you from me, half from Zach. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll have, what, like, the Sue Storm will be the possibly overlooked. Something you might have missed is the Invisible Woman. Mr. Fantastic, the super smart scientist guy, will be an actual science thing. Uh, that, that that was such a good lead, and that's going to give people so much confidence. And I'm like, ah, oh, science stuff! That's science! <laughs> uh, we got the Human Torch, which will be something hot and new off the presses, at least as far as when we're recording. And I <laughs> do not remember what the thing is supposed to be, which is too bad, because we had a nice thing going there back and forth. The thing's the odd one out. The solid, dependable, we've probably talked about something similar before. Yeah, we. I mean, it's the solid or it's the clobber in time where if we need to bring up, somebody's been behaving badly. All right. The, the, the thing's <laughs> the one that's most likely to have something that matters. Um, and if we bro- both bring the same article, I will have an amazing bag man to back it up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that's the... Dumbest one-panel joke that made it into every single Spider-Man game ever made. It's true. <laughs> oh, I love it. Anyways. I think just about every Marvel game ever made. Well, yeah. If you can fly or swing around the city as in a Fantastic Four uniform and a grocery bag, you would too. I do. Uh, <laughs> the other big announcement thing is that General Nerdery is going to be going to a bi-weekly schedule. But... Don't worry, because Tyler and I are madmen, and we are just going to launch a third fucking podcast together to go on the off weeks. Exactly. Um, as it was when we were first putting together the idea of doing a podcast, um, it wasn't this. No. It was uh, what we're calling New Byland, and will be the new show. Um, it's still not quite exactly what was envisioned, but that's because we have real lives and jobs. Yes. Uh, rather than this jumping around and us talking about whatever the hell we want to every week, as long as it's somewhat tangentially nerdy related. <laughs> Sometimes very tangentially. Uh, it's going to be more of a deep dive, focusing in on a subject for a number of episodes and bringing someone through it. Uh, we will be bringing my buddy Mackenzie on board to be our 
Guinea pig. Guinea pig. Yep. Experiment. We're going to make fun of him the whole time. And he wanted... The idea is a whole season-long story on a single... Or not story. A whole season-long on a single facet. And he's like, teach me about magic in the Marvel Universe. And it turned into 30 goddamn episodes long because I'm a psychopath. The original plan for this had been to do it once a month. And then I wrote out the episodes and was like, oh, we have to cover this. And I went, oh, that's going to take years. We can't do that. So still the same amount of us, just different focused us. Also, uh, Word Balloons, which we have promised and even released stuff for, it is so close to done. We will have it out sometime in January. Mm-hmm. Uh, literally, our poor editor is just really desperately overthinking what the theme song should be. yeah pretty much that and i haven't had the website set up yet but but uh so there will be lots more ear verb nerdiness if you are enjoying any of this coming up in 2021 and thank fucking god because uh we got to make 2021 better than 2020 somehow (laughs) um and with the the new violin thing uh, i think that will mean we probably won't cover anything related to Marvel magic as much on General Nerd. No, we will avoid it like the plague. (laughs) Uh, If we are going to cover comic books on General Nerdery, it will be much more likely to be maybe a third-party comic book, something that you might not have heard of as well. Well, I mean, and while we're focusing on Marvel for a while on Uh New Byland, DC, of course, will be open game. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Especially... I mean, do Batman we'll, Beyond? We'll, I've been wanting to do that since the beginning. Now I have an excuse, and we're going <laughs> to have to follow up Metal at some point since they followed up Metal. Yeah, Death Metal, I think, ended next month. I don't know. So I soon. So. I'll pick it up on the trade. Um, exactly. On that note, do we have any news today? I got a little bit of news today. All right, I'll start with the smallest thing, just because it's fun and I love seeing him getting roles. Uh, Oscar Isaac is going to be Solid Snake in the Metal Gear Solid movie. Well, that's probably going to be terrible, but not (laughs) because of Oscar Isaac. (laughs) I think he's probably perfect for the role, so I'm happy. If they can make him grungy enough, yes. I think you can grunge him up. It's kind of funny because he's originally, I was originally, what, Kurt, based off Kurt Russell in Snake Plissken. Yeah. Uh, from Escape from New York. So is Isaac going to grow the uh, mullet that Snake oh, had some of the so. things? <laughs> oh, I fucking hope so. I'd be in for that. Actually, they've been trying to remake Escape from New York for years now. Just to have Just Oscar, Oscar Isaac do it? <laughs> like, are you playing the same Snake? Don't worry about it. Although I will say that's... I'm generally not against remakes too often. I'm against that just because I do rewatch Escape from New York pretty often, and it's just still really rewatchable as it is right now. So somehow I've I don't only know how much you'd add to it. <laughs> somehow I've only ever seen Escape from New York once, but have seen Escape from L.A. the like shitty re- or not re- oh, uh, sequel one like six times. Do you know there was supposed to be four of them? <laughs> yeah, because uh, it was supposed to be Escape to Mars next. Yeah, it, well, it was going to be Escape from Earth and then Escape from Mars. <laughs> and that was I was you were watching some video when I that was like Ghosts of Mars got turned into or something yep. like that. Oh man, that was bad. Oh, I love Ghosts of Mars. That, that has nothing to do with its quality. Um, oh no, that's true. 
It's because I love Ice Cube as a guy named Desolation Williams. <laughs> That's perfect. It's just bad. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, where were we? Yeah. Metal Gear Oscar Solid. Metal Gear Solid. I'm not, it's not a game system, uh, uh, game series I've ever gotten into, but cool. A lot of people love it. I just wonder if they'll be able to make the film as appropriately weird as the game. Probably not. Probably not. I don't know how you would ever translate properly any Hideo Kojima game. I was going to say, Kojima's a weird fucking dude. Anyway, R.I.P. Arcebo Observatory in Puerto Rico. Oh, yeah. I watched the video of it. Yeah. I've only seen the pictures. Uh, The Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. uh, Giant radar dish used for observing all sorts of amazing things in our galaxy and beyond. Uh, plus, pop culturally famous as being uh, the site for some of the fights in Goldeneye. In both could the not movie, tell you what they were doing at there in Goldeneye, but uh... Uh, in both the movie and the video game. And so, I, I thought we'd uh, just bring up a couple of the things that it did for humankind yeah, before it, it perished. It completely collapsed. Um, it had. We should say it had been out of service for years. True. Which is part of the reason why it had gotten so low. But, you know, it's still one of the most important observatories we ever have created as a species. And it's been around since the 60s. Yeah. Like, Which is it why a, it collapsed. Yeah, but. it had a good long life. <laughs> it's what they use to confirm that a year on Mercury is 59 days long, not 88 days. Uh, we used it to send messages to aliens in case they're out there. That's turned out great so far. <laughs> right. It detected the first binary pulsar. It gave us our first radar maps of Venus. Uh, It helped find ice at the poles of Mercury. It detected the first extrasolar planets. uh, And detected the first repeating fast radio burst. So, like, most of how we understand astronomy today. Right. And then was also, like... um, Part of other experiments helping understand gravitational waves, although wasn't pioneering them like it was some of those other mm-hmm. things. Well, that's a bummer, but I'm not going to lie. Watching the video of it collapsing was kind of cool. Um. And that's kind of our warm up for the Mr. Fantastic segment. Hey, that's, that's like the Doctor Doom right there. Jesus right? Christ. Man. Hey, I had, there wasn't much this week. <laughs> no. As big as Arecibo. Fall yeah, that, that is. Oh, on R.I.P.'s, I don't know if you have this next one. Oh, were you going to bring up Hugh Keysburn? No, I was going to bring up David Prowse. Oh, yeah, because that was also very recently. Darth Vader, but Darth Vader body, not Darth Vader James Earl Jones. Uh, he died, I think, last week? My sense of time got really weird when I got quarantined. Like, It was get last week. Sleep. That's why I didn't bring it up, because I was only looking from things from... That makes sense. I just... Prowse was a big enough one. And in honor, I am really just going to say, go find the video on YouTube of the you're part of the Rebel Alliance and a traitor scene, but without James Earl Jones voiced over and with the David Prowse voice and his, like, weird Scottish with a slight lisp accent. (laughs) 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 Fucking through the Darth Vader and, like, the uh, people on set being like, is this what that's going to sound like? <laughs> and Prowse, uh, as a nerdy tie-in, 
while working uh, on the first Star Wars, was also helping train Christopher Reeves to get in shape for Superman. Wow, that's cool. I didn't know because that. Because Krauss used to be a bodybuilder. Damn, son. <laughs> uh, and then the big shake-up, let's see what happens. Every Warner Brothers movie that was slated to come out in 2021 is going to be dropping on HBO Max uh, for no extra cost. I'm probably going to get HBO Max now. I had no significant interest in getting that, like, cool... It would, it's one of the better streaming services already, but like, I think we have like two or three, so I didn't really feel the need for a fourth, but I want to watch In the Heights, like, the moment it comes out. Oh, yeah. So... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, <clears throat> this will start with Wonder Woman 1984, which will be dropped Christmas Day. Uh, what they're doing with all of these is they are technically going to be having a simultaneous uh, theatrical release, depending where you're but at. But theaters are screwed, so... Depending where you're at, that's not even a possibility. Some places, it shouldn't be a possibility. People, don't go to the theaters right now. There's too many people going to places. Stop doing it. Exactly. And then, I mean, this will go through the entire year, though. Uh, the way it's going is they'll have the simultaneous release. They'll only be free on HBO Max for the first month. And After then... that month, it goes to normal PVOD. And then eventually enter some streaming thing yeah, sooner or later. for whatever yeah. time period that would normally be, and then back onto a streamer. I feel like that's odd, and you could just put it on the stream and have it be fine, but whatever. They want to try and make that money. I guess, I don't know if more power to them, because it's AT&T, like, I don't... But, uh, fair enough. Uh, what I do like about it is I am more likely to see more new releases this way, particularly since we got a projector for our house. So we can do big old movie nights and like, not a movie theater, but similar. Yeah, with a better food and drink. The list of the movies this actually affects, uh, some of these I've never fucking heard of and probably won't be of any interest to a lot of people, but it's not a long list, so here we go. Uh, the Little Things, yeah. Tom and Jerry, Wait, what? Or, yeah. Yeah. I guess they're doing a Tom and Jerry movie. I didn't know. Uh, the Many Saints of Newark. Mm. Reminiscence. Mm. Godzilla vs. Kong. That one I'm excited about. Uh, the Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. <laughs> sounds actively terrible. It sounds like you're going to have to do that one for Fried Squirms, but it sounds actively terrible. Yeah. You know, the first one wasn't bad. We finally did do that, but... I don't think it holds up as it goes further into the series, but we'll have to find out. Anyway, In the Heights. <laughs> yes, the that Heights. one. I mean, I listened to In the Heights on the way to work today. Uh, Space Jam, A New Legacy. <laughs> I feel like we're going to have to do an episode on that one just because ever since the they announced one. it, like you and I have been having this like really kind of uncomfortable, like, what's happening? But I want to know more. I mean, I always planned on watching it just because... I want to look for the uh, Go-Go Dodo showing up in the background. Go-Go Dodo's long been my favorite. I don't remember. Character. Did they end up confirming that fucking Jim Carrey's going to be the mask or something in it? Oh, there was goodness. weird news like a year ago about that, so it does not matter if you don't remember that. I just... Yeah. What? <laughs> I mean, please, but... <laughs> but also, what is this movie? Come on in. Jam? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> The Suicide Squad. Yes. Dune. Yes. 
Elvis. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Look, get King Bruce Rich. Campbell to do it, but otherwise. <laughs> oh my God! Yes. <laughs> King Richard. You're not gonna watch Bubba Hotep. Um, you um, know, I don't know anything about it, but King Richard's a good play. The Matrix Four. I never saw the third one. Really? This will make me do it. I don't know how. I was always it was one of those that people are like we should watch it. I'm like okay. Well, with this Science. one, I never saw the second one, Sherlock Holmes three. Yeah, I really actually like the first one quite a bit. The Guy Ritchie mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes. The second one, I had fun watching it. Like what you were talking about with Big Mouth, I had fun watching it. But as soon as I got out of there, I was like, that didn't make a goddamn piece of sense. Um, it didn't give me the feels though. And then Guy Ritchie's not directing this one? I don't think so. I'd have to look into that. You know, uh, uh, fucking Iron Man. Why can I not think of his name? Favreau? Robert Downey Jr. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, RDJ. RDJ, and that's what, Jude Law with him? No. Yes. Oh, um, yes. They're Sherlock and Watson, whoever the hell they are, Mm -hmm. since apparently I don't know names anymore. Uh, we're perfectly charming together, so... If I have HBO Max, I'll probably watch it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. No idea. I need to know everything is. about what's going on in that sentence. <laughs> right? Uh, macro. Malignant. And Mortal Kombat. <laughs> Fuck yes. <laughs> that one I did not know. <laughs> This one might be interesting. Uh, Supposedly, they're going for game-accurate fatalities. Oh, God. Wow. That is some violent shit right there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Over the top and uncomfortably funny at times. (laughs) That's that's Mortal Kombat in a nutshell, my love. You understand. Oh, because it's been a month. That was the other big thing. I I rocked out a ton of Mortal Kombat again because they dropped three <laughs> new characters, including Rain. Ooh, who else yeah. did they add? Rain, Melina, and John Rambo, voiced by Sly Stallone. Okay. Whenever okay. they do the character packs, they always have one like just out of fucking left yeah. field. Yeah. Um, in X and yeah, in Mortal Kombat 10, it was all like horror themed. And so it was like Jason and like the alien and shit. Well, I mean, it also explains why I have Robocop and the Terminator on my Mortal Kombat, which I was I forgot that I when I bought the set, it came with those. Mm. So I'm like fighting the final boss who's it's just random who they are. And fucking the Joker pops up. And I'm like, I'm not sure what's happening, but man, I like punching Joker in the face. No wonder Batman does this. <laughs> uh and there's rumors we're going to be getting one more DLC pack, and the entire time this one's been out, Bruce Campbell's been trolling us on Twitter saying that it's Ash. <laughs> All right, yeah. Which, God, it fucking better be Ash finally. Anyway. Um, of course, because of that, AMC's now pissed. AMC's been pissed for a year now. <laughs> uh, let me guess, are they, are they threatening that they won't show any of these movies now? Because... Last time they tried that, everyone went, man, that's going to hurt you way more than us. And they quietly stopped talking about it. I mean, I'm not sure what they're threatening this time around. Basically, though, I think they're still trying to... It's such a big shakeup that they're still trying to figure out what exactly they're going to do. But their statement that they've released released so far um, is basically that they understand that the coronavirus times are uncharted waters. Yes. And that's why they had signed the deal to do Wonder Woman 84 the way 
that HBO is doing it. Apparently, there was no talks about suddenly switching every movie to doing that. Well, that's a classic AT&T shitty move, but at the same time, I literally only go to the movie theaters for Star Wars anymore because the movie theater experience is so broken, as you have heard me yell for a year now, that I suck at AMC. But also, find a way to stay open because you finally made a theater in our town with comfortable chairs, and I don't want to lose that. <laughs> mm-hmm. He says that... It seems to him like it seems to AMC that Warner intends to sacrifice a portion of their profitability in order to subsidize subsidize the HBO Max startup. But as for AMC, we will do all in our power to ensure that Warner does not do so at our expense. We will aggressively pursue economic terms that preserve our business. That's all. That I've was the so cattiest bullshit I have ever heard in corporate terms. <laughs> that HBO Max startup. No, HBO is not a fucking startup, man. Like, but it's seen. And then when asking other theater chains, some of them don't have any statements yet. It's been kind of back and forth across the board. Some theaters seem just to be happy to have an opportunity to still get the movie at all. So. It's one of those that we've been yelling about the theater industry dying for as long as I've been alive. <laughs> so at this point, it's kind of your own fault that you didn't see this one coming. Yeah. Uh, we'll see what else they do. But AMC doesn't really have the power to do anything right now. Considering <laughs> I think the last time we were on an episode talking, we were talking about how they were basically going around begging for money. So Yeah, they were like, we don't know if we're going to be able to start up again. Only go through us or we won't show your movies. You might not anyways, man. Truly, like we keep saying, also, would still also be a bummer. Because I do enjoy our AMC. <laughs> yeah, my movie buddy lives like five blocks from the movie theater. How How do you have a paycheck? Well, because Corona, so no one's been going to the movies. Mm -hmm. uh, 2020, I hate you so much. That's all I got. All right. Uh, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will uh, go through the insanity that is Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett working together. This is the place where I sometimes think that between the two of us, I'm the wrong one to be doing the podcasting about things while CeCe's not for the most part, because I roll in being like, well, I finished the audiobook again. And you're sitting here with like 30 pages of notes, almost like small, small notebook, but still. <laughs> I have big, ugly handwriting, yeah, though, so, you know. <laughs> Half notebook full of notes. Yeah, I listened to the audiobook. Normally I'm really good about those. <laughs> this time it's just a series of pictures on my phone to remind, <laughs> to remind me of certain passages in the book. So just I don't fucking hieroglyphicking your way through your notes here. I mean, I have read this book, I don't have no idea how many times. Um, and well, there's a few times, like in college, where I'd be having a bad day and I would think about a scene and I would open the book to that scene and start reading and then just not stop reading. And then I would just finish the book, you know. So there's a few times where I've read <laughs> yep. part of the book, you know, like a significant chunk before I went, oh, I didn't mean to sit here and just keep reading. It's just it's just that kind of book, though. Like, Yeah, I mean, I've listened to it like I'm making fun of myself, but I also did listen to the audiobook two times, I think, in the last month, the original time and then the oh shit, we haven't recorded it in three weeks, so I need to uh, remind myself what's happening. Uh, you know, normally I think a good place to start would be the beginning and yes, like thank our you, first Tyler. times with all of this. This is why I'm really bad at things. I just picked like yeah. 185. And but 
I think we should also probably give like at least a little bit of what this book is. Quick segue yeah. on this because you're making a joke about starting. I should actually try starting at the beginning. Uh, <laughs> first time I watched 30 Rock, I pressed play on Netflix. And for whatever reason, it didn't start at the pilot. It started somewhere in like season four. And I watched like two or three episodes before I realized that wasn't the pilot. And it wasn't just like <laughs> the most aggressive storyline opening of all time. Credit to the show. I followed everything. <laughs> I was really enjoying it. I was just like, wow. They don't give a fuck if you know who these people are. It's just the Buckaroo Bonsai route. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. But <laughs> to what we're actually talking about in theory. All right. Good omens. What's the easiest way to describe this book? The Antichrist has been born. There's been a switch up. He's being raised as a normal kid. There's an angel and a demon, been stationed on Earth from the beginning. Now that Armageddon approaches, they want to stop it because they kind of like the Earth. Because they don't want to go back to living in heaven and or hell. Exactly. And there's uh, the last two witch hunters, or the last witch hunter and his apprentice, his... His, his idiot ex, buddy. His like, private. His yeah. private. Um, and the last descendant of a the world's most accurate witch. It is a very dense and complicated book and if I had to sum it up in one sentence I would say Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman goof around with Christian, Christian mythology for like 400 pages. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I think the way I've always sold it is the way is the way that the book drew me in for the first time as I walked by it in the book exchange in town here. This is my third copy of the book. This is still my first, miraculously, but you can also, I mean... They're comparing covers. You guys can't see it. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I noticed on this read-through, I'm starting to uh, yeah. starting to rip some pages out on accident. Um, my, my other ones have uh, walked away at different points. Yeah. Uh, as apparently this book is wont to do, I guess it has quite yes. the reputation amongst it, librarians. It does, which is why when I... <laughs> I once lent this out and it didn't get back to me fast enough. So I then went and bought a second copy and then was like, this one's your copy. Now give me back mine <laughs> was how I because I quickly realized there was a chance I might not ever get my copy back and I'm rather fond of this. But how did the cover actually grab the, you? The cover uh, on the front, it said uh, the Book of Revelation is rewritten by Monty Python. Yeah. Accurate. Accurate. This was my first experience with Terry Pratchett because you convinced we, you and I somehow ended up listening to the audiobook version because uh, I knew you liked this book, I think. Yeah, I don't I don't remember. Like this was one of the first audiobooks you and I ever listened to because this was kind of uh, this was before we got really into Audible and listening to a bunch of audiobooks and listening to a lot of podcasts. This is what got us into doing that. <laughs> um, um, and I can't remember what exactly, yeah, made us listen to this other than I was talking about it or something and you put it on and then you got really into it. I got really into it. Uh, Terry Pratchett, I now list, I mean, I've mentioned this before, he's probably my favorite author anymore. So this is not my favorite Terry Pratchett book, but it is one of the best works he ever did. Like his, you combine him and Neil Gaiman together and you get a writer better than the sum of the parts, I think. Mm -hmm. um, 
And this is about as good an introduction to Terry Pratchett as you could, or Neil Gaiman, that you could possibly get. This was not my first Terry Pratchett book. Thud, I think you told me. Well, I believe, so I read The Amazing Maurice and His Educated Rodents, and I read Thud both in middle school. Um, they were just happened to be in my very tiny library. I went to, for, for background, I went to school with the same 30 kids, K through 8. So, (laughs) (laughs) very small, barely could call it a library. It blows me away that I'm the city slicker in this room. (laughs) Uh, Anyways, I found the, yeah, I read The Amazing Maurice's Educated Rodents um, and really loved it. And then I found Thud. And Thud is part of the, the the Night Watch thing. And it's like the second to last book of the night. So I didn't read the other books first. I just picked up Thud, which is in the middle of, like, all of these established characters. It's the seventh one and, like, the 40th Discworld book. Yeah. And I loved it. And, like, remember, like, my favorite scene in that book, like, stuck with me for my entire life until Zach and I, within the last, like, year, year and a half, listened to it again from the first time since I was in <laughs> middle school. And, like, that scene was... Just still, like, one of my favorite scenes in a book ever. Oh, yeah. Um, So I possibly picked this up because of Terry Pratchett. Um, But at about the same time I picked this up, I was a freshman in in, no, freshman in high school, not college. I was a freshman in high school and Neverwhere and... um, uh, American Gods were really big, and Anansi Boys had just come out, and mm. all of my new kind of friend acquaintances in high school were raving about Anansi Boys because they had all read um, American Gods. So, not entirely sure that this was necessarily the first Neil Gaiman I read, but really early in my like deep dive into Neil Gaiman, and I've read a lot of Neil Gaiman. You tend to list Neil Gaiman as your favorite author or yeah. you know like top three you know how often yeah works. yeah uh, yeah for sure i probably own more neil gaiman than any other author that reminds me i gotta figure out what issue of sandman i've bought you up to because every christmas <laughs> i buy her the next volume of sandman mm. yeah this is my first terry and my first neil it's such a good i don't think it was my first neil i think it's the first neil i finished because i read i've read about half of american gods which we talked about before and then I was moving and it just disappeared in the move. So I never finished it. Yeah, let me see. It would have been probably the summer before I went to college. I ran into it uh, down at the book exchange. Uh, came into town with my mom. So I got I was able to start reading it like on the way home because I didn't have to fucking drive. Fucking loved it. And immediately... First, I loved it, so I knew I had to check out both the authors anyway, Mm -hmm. but I also was intensely, intensely curious if, once I read them separately, if I could figure out what each of them wrote in the book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In some places you can, in some places you cannot. There are Um, places that Neil can't tell. (laughs) And he talks about that, and it comes up on Tumblr Mm. quite often, um, people asking who wrote what parts, and... At one point, Neil actually went back and looked at some of these old emails and notes and things between him and Terry to confirm who wrote what. And he 
was wrong. He was convinced that Terry wrote a part that actually he wrote or the other way around, or he literally could not tell. And someone actually made a computer algorithm to try and figure it out and plugged in a whole bunch of Neil books and a whole bunch of Terry books so that the computer would learn their writing styles Mm -hmm. and then ran Good Omens to see if you could tell. One of the interesting things about that, you know, because it had, you know, like a midline and then Neil above. And and so there was some parts where it was very like 50, like Mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. But when they ran all those other novels through some of Terry Pratchett's other works had Neil pop up in them. And they showed this to Neil and Terry used to actually have Neil read a lot of his drafts and Neil would give feedback. And there was one book that, and I don't remember which one it was that Neil said, Oh yeah, I helped him like do a lot of like figuring he was stuck on that part. And we like did a lot of back and forth. And so it makes sense that this algorithm picked up the influence I had on that little bit of that book. Uh, you know, I think the best, there's a line, and he tells the story of it, where uh, Terry calls him up and he goes, hey, I've rewritten this line and it's now 10% funnier. (laughs) And it was the talking about spooning by the river and on one memorable occasion, occasion fork. uh, And that on one memorable occasion, fork, is Terry adding to the Neil line, Mm -hmm. in his opinion, making it 10% funnier. But apparently these two were friends for years and Gaiman would get just like, here, I've written up the first draft. I'm sending it to you of like the Discworld books as they were coming out on like floppy or something because it was the 90s. And I'm just trying to imagine how much I would murder for a floppy disk with the newest Discworld book (laughs) on it before it was published. Like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I finished the book within the day. That's a lot of book in a day. I, I had do nothing it. else to do at the time, so... When I, I was a kid, I could have done it easy. Probably shouldn't anymore, at the very least. <laughs> uh, definitely before the week was out, anyway. Oh, yeah. Uh, and because I was still at home, I went down to the local library and uh, checked out American Gods, which I also finished before the week was out. And then next time I was in Missoula, bought that and Neverwhere... And, uh, and Tyler was never the same again. And The Color of Magic and uh, read those, uh, ready all three of those multiple times my uh, freshman year at college. Uh, picked up Anansi Boys while I was at college. And then once I became a college dropout was when I started getting into Sandman and started picking up more of the Terry Pratchett again. Yeah. I always feel weird about Color of Magic because Terry Pratchett is pretty open himself of like, you can just skip that one. I love it. It's good. I I really like I like it more than Terry likes it, I think. Mm-hmm. But uh That's how uh him and Neil met though, was Neil was making his living as a journalist, freelance journalist, and um Terry's agent set up this interview with him when he was releasing Color of Magic and him and Oh, I didn't know it was that far back. Yeah, it was his like very early and this is before as Neil puts it it was before Terry Pratchett was Terry Pratchett and they sat down and and Neil interviewed Terry and they like really hit it off and then Terry started getting because he'd released a couple books before that but like 
Discworld is where he got his name in. Yeah, so then he started getting really big, and then um, Neil started getting really big in, like, comics, and then the two of them made this bit of magic happen. And, Uh, yeah. I love the story of how that came about. This originally was, as I understand it, was originally a Neil book. Yes, this was, I think Neil had written about 30 pages and didn't know what happened next, so he sent it off to Terry. Terry (laughs) sat on it for a year. Then he suddenly one day gets in contact with Neil and says, "Uh, I don't know how it ends, but I know what happens next. Mm -hmm. So you can either co-write this with me or sell it to me. I don't care which one, but one of these two things is going to happen. And he was like, yeah, I'll write a book with you. That sounds amazing. Yeah, like, you're Terry Pratchett. <laughs> are you kidding me? Which, I mean, magical. Magical, yep. Magical. Yeah. Uh, so magical. This book uh, starts you off literally in the beginning. This book starts you off with the two characters, Aziraphale and Crowley, also, real quick, I'm assuming Crowley is named after Alistair Crowley. I always assumed that way, at least. Crowley. Crowley. <laughs> and at the beginning, he's Crowley. Crowley. Uh, was the snake that tempted Eve with the apple. And Aziraphale was an angel who was guarding Eden and gave them his flaming sword because she was pregnant and needed a way to stay warm. Um... I know you looked this up. Aziraphale, there's some kind of character history to that name that I don't know. So Terry... Not the, an actual yeah. name from any of the mythology. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. He, Aziraphale is not, a, is not a name within, like, the Bible or anything like that. However, it does follow the rules for angel names. Um, that and, makes sense with these and, two. Terry thought it sounded like the most over-the-top, angelic-sounding name that he could come up with. You know, it has the same sound as Raphael. Yeah, um, it's close to quite a few. Azrael, like, and he did that on purpose to just, you know, make Aziraphale sound like... (laughs) And there's an Israfel. Yeah. That's close. I don't know. (laughs) On, on the note of Aziraphale giving that sword away, there's this whole bit of them talking in the beginning where he says, uh, I hope it wasn't the wrong thing to do. I hope it was right for me to give that away. Mm-hmm. And Crowley makes Crowley makes this joke of, um, of, I don't think it's actually possible for you to do the wrong evil thing. because yeah. Aziraphale has already like, told him it's not possible for him to do the right thing because he's a demon. Mm-hmm. And and Aziraphale completely misses the sarcasm and is <laughs> like, it's like, oh, I hope you're, I hope you're right. So there's that bit of, uh, wouldn't it be funny if I did the, did the right thing and you did the wrong thing all along? And, and Aziraphale's like, no, that really wouldn't be funny. <laughs> It'd be terrible, actually. <laughs> Something I was listening to, um, when I was listening to it today and I was trying to remember, Way, I'm going to skip way to the end here. Also, if you haven't read this book, just stop now. Just. <laughs> <laughs> we have sold you on this. We'll talk to you next week. But uh, when war, he later picks up war's sword and he sets it on fire. And I couldn't tell. Is that his old sword mm-hmm. that war was carrying? OK, because yeah, he says it's been a while. Yeah, since I had since I, you know, it's very clearly like the sword that he gives. That's what I thought. But they were never. 
quite clear on it. So I was like, oh shit, he did do, he basically gave war to the world. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. He gave them the first weapon uh, is what that implies. And once again, like, was that necessarily like a good thing or a bad thing? And I mean, we, we would all say, of course, war is a bad thing. But the reason he did it wasn't with the intent of it being a weapon. It was an intent of giving them fire, not mm-hmm. a sword. One of the running themes of this book. Which, I mean, that ties into nuclear power. Yeah. And Which then, comes up a lot in the book. And yeah. it, it they keep, uh, whenever they're bringing up the issue of Aziraphale and Crowley being much like Cold War, Cold War era spies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and it comes up a lot also um, where heaven stands on weapons, guns. Yeah, he says we're in favor of them these days or something. Yeah, is even even Crowley has to say where is heaven standing these days on a (laughs) on a guns or or um, whatever kind of weaponry and like there's kind of this this uh, mentality of oh in the as long as they're like. As long as our side has them, they're good. But, you know, it's when the other side has them that we, you know, we frown upon, you know, Mm -hmm. and there's... One of the things they talk about a lot in this book is that humans aren't pure good or pure evil. No character. I mean, that's the point of this book, really. And the angels, the demons talk about that nonstop. But I think one of the points of the book is that it's true in heaven and hell as well. I mean... Mm-hmm. Crowley is someone good deep inside, and Aziraphale is just enough of a bastard to be worth knowing. Well, and 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 I, I'm pretty sure Crowley literally says this at some point. We both know that good and evil are just names for two sides. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It made me think of when Todd McFarlane created Spawn. He had that same idea that heaven and hell are just sides, and it doesn't matter if you're good or bad. It's literally one person dies goes to heaven, next person that dies goes to hell, back and forth. And this is kind of similar to that, except actually well done. As I was going through it, I was kind of like, okay, this is kind of weirdly, I feel like I shouldn't be so okay with as much both sidesism as going on. Mm-hmm. But where they're placed on the spectrum makes it easier. Because like you said, they both have a little bit of the other side in them. It's kind of like, even though they're their own separate characters in the book, they're kind of everyone's angel and devil on the shoulder. Crowley's not that bad. He's just kind of in favor of being excessive. Aziraphale's really not that good. He just kind of keeps out of the way for the (laughs) most part. And they they both make mention of times when it's humanity that goes beyond to the extremes. And that's when they're like, yeah, no, those guys are nutters. It, yeah. And it's not even so much, oh, both sides, because both, like, that tries to, you know, oh, mm-hmm. well, good people and whatever. It's more about the people stuck in the middle of two big players. Like, it's not America, Russia, you know, Cold War thing. It is fucking Afghanistan stuck in the middle. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. being yeah. like, what the fuck, all of you? Yeah. I did not ask to be <laughs> in the middle of... Of this, yeah. And, I, I mean, both, That's I think that's the other part of, like, not only do Aziraphale and Crowley really like Earth and want to keep hanging out on Earth, because it's way more interesting than either Heaven or and Hell. And we have sushi. But. They're very clear about the sushi. Yeah. Well, Neil and Terry both really like sushi. <laughs> um, 
I think they make mention of getting kicked out of an all-you-can-eat sushi restaurant because they took advantage. <laughs> um, but uh, the fact that the humans don't didn't choose to get stuck in the middle of this war, like why, why are we, why, why do we have to test this to the limit when the humans didn't yeah. choose this? Like, They're just here trying to be human, as the, Adam talks about in the end. Yeah, the whales didn't fucking choose <laughs> this. The gorillas have no idea what's going on. Like. Save the Whales is a very, like, statement that places it in a certain era of history. Yeah. I mean, still, save the whale, save some goddamn whales, guys. But, like, <laughs> that was, like, the nature cause du jour when I was a kid. Yeah. I've, I almost certainly did not pronounce du jour correctly there, but... The White soup. boy from Montana! Possibly. <laughs> it's, the, it's the soup du jour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I... So we started at the beginning, and then it goes into the Dramatis Personae and lists all the characters who are going to pop up, which is just a funny bit in and of itself. Making it a part of the book, too. Not just, like, I've had other books with Dramatis Personae, but, you know, put it at the beginning. Not like, all right, we've started. Now, here's everyone you're going to need to know. Yes. But the description of Crowley as... Someone who didn't, an angel who didn't so much fall as saunter vaguely, vaguly downwards. downwards. You That's understand. That's what I think of. Anytime I think of Crowley is his, like, that That sets who, the kind of person that he is. Like, sure, he's working for the forces of hell, but, you know, he's casual about, you know, he's casual <laughs> about it. What year did this book come out? Real quick. Uh, 1990. Okay, so it is definitely before Dogma came out. Yes. Because bits of Dogma remind me of bits of Crowley. Crowley is way cooler than any of the people in Dogma, but the... <laughs> so I just flipped open to the, um... Oh, the copyright page. Um, and I noticed this. I had never noticed it before. I've had this copy of this book for 14 years. But clearly I didn't look that closely at the copyright page. At the top, there's a caveat. Bringing about Armageddon can be dangerous. Do not attempt in your own home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there's a... I was about to say, maybe we should bring up the characters, and then I started flipping through, and there's a lot of fucking There's a lot of fucking book. things that go on in this right. book. Who's there's... everyone's favorite character? Um, <sighs> Wensleydale. Really? Wow. I don't know if Wensleydale's actually... I just... I found something super like entertaining about Wensleydale. Um Shadwell just cracks me up. He probably like, has the most funny lines out of He's he's so racist but like he doesn't actually <laughs> know what he's being like what he doesn't really like he's very it, I, his racism they actually talk about this a bit with um the the land or the the Rajits, I think yeah, yeah the Rajits how they're not like he's so offensive but he's offensive to everyone like he hates everyone that the Rajits even though he's being a racist shithead they don't find it offensive because they're like it, it, uh, <laughs> harmless racism is a really dangerous phrase to say yes especially as again white boy from Montana <laughs> I don't know if I've covered that enough in history but. Uh, the line, what was the line? Uh, because he calls 
uh, Aziraphale, the Southern Pansy, which yeah. is another line that dates this book a little bit, but still. Uh, and he he hates all Southerners, but uh, geographically that places him at the North, North Pole. Pole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He hates everyone equally. And he's just so over the top about it. And as like you like all the other characters who interact with him kind of like have this like they're they're charmed by him. There's something <laughs> about this like grumpy old man who can't stick to an accent. Like they bring up at one point that he bounces around geographically like throughout a sentence and they just can't help but like. He's a grumpy, terrible, gross piece of shit, but he's got a really high charisma role somehow. Yeah, or you're just fascinated by him. You, like, can't look away from, like, the the grumpy train wreck that is Shadwell. <laughs> so, here's... The way I always kind of envisioned him in my mind is actually pretty close to uh, the weird uh, punk uh, vimes we're getting. Mm. Yeah, I can mm-hmm. see that. Um, yeah. Actually, on the same note, when we did Men at Arms... We gave Terry some shit for he talks about Vimes being racist, but he's kind of racist to everyone. So it's OK. And we were like, that's not OK. Uh, and we're, I noticed that we're giving Shadwell more leeway here. But I think the reason is Shadwell's not really forgiven for it. There's like Shadwell's not the main hero in the way that Vimes is in a lot right. of like, yeah. And it also doesn't play directly into the main plot. Yes. yes. And they're just yeah. like, he sucks, but he's so weirdly interesting in the way that he sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like inherently just it's a part of his character. Whereas with, you know, in Vimes, it kind of sets up an opportunity for character growth. We don't get that with Shadwell in terms of his racism. Like, sure, at the end. We barely he, get character growth from Shadwell. Yes. Like at the very end, he like chills out and retires. And that's our character growth is him deciding, well, maybe it wouldn't be so bad to just <laughs> chill the fuck out. Uh, I, go ahead. Sorry. But there's really nothing that says to us that he's going to stop being a sexist, racist, terrible, grouchy, <laughs> awful man who lives on cigarettes and condensed milk. Like, <laughs> I think. Part of what makes it that you're able to get away with him is he's balanced so fucking well with Madame Tracy. Just every I would find either of these characters just impossible to be around for wildly different reasons. Yeah. But they're so like weirdly perfect together. Like he's, you know, the whore of Babylon. And she's like, oh, it's so nice to still be noticed. (laughs) um, Considers him yelling uh, in the hallway about her being the whore of Babylon and banging on the, banging on the walls to be free advertising and to, if anything, flirting kind of like, (laughs) well, and her like heavily implied she's a sex worker. Don't care on that one, but I don't have a whole lot of patience for psychics. So part of me was like, fucking Tracy, like, goddamn fucking psychics. And she's clearly bullshitting most of it. The, yeah. the time that when Aziraphale ends up, like, interrupting her seance and she's just hanging out, like, making herself a list of groceries while, like, yeah. setting up. I'm like, oh, but also you two are weirdly perfect. <laughs> <laughs> like, Why is Wensleydale your... I, you know, he probably 
Like, I say that, he probably isn't. He is the character I enjoyed the most this time listening through it. Mm. Have you ever had that? You listen to a book and you start, or read a book and you start paying attention to, like... More to somebody else. Yeah. Something about Wensleydale, and I think it might just be that initial description of him. He's one of the they, he's one of Adam's gang. And he's, the idea that his name is not actually Wensleydale. (laughs) It's some other normal name and people just started... Say calling him Wensleydale, <laughs> just because he was a Wensleydale, and his parents call him youngster in like a subconscious hope of giving him the hint. Yeah. Um, you know, born at forty six and <laughs> like at the age of forty six, there was something about him and Brian that just cracked me up this time. Because they're such opposites. Like Wensley is is very clearly, like you said, like he's trying to be an adult. He's 11 and he's trying to be an adult. Whereas Brian is like Peter Pan, never going to grow up. Like Brian is the most like me when I was his age. Like Probably, I was, yeah. I was definitely like Brian. I was I like somewhere between Wesley and Pigpen. Yeah. Pigpen's it. You know who I think of? Did you ever watch that show? I think it was Recess. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There was yes. the big kid with mm-hmm. like yeah. water. He's who I visualize oh. when I read Brian's lines. Okay, yeah, I see that. I see that. Uh, I I don't know why, but just for whatever reason, Wensley being like, no, guys, what you're saying doesn't make sense, but he'll still sometimes add in yeah, he's still... weird kid logic bullshit right. that you're like, Wensley, you're so close, but you're like yes. so far at the same time, buddy. And right. I love that. He's like all, all four of the them... Especially when they're hanging out together. Like, the dialogue between the them is so great because it is, it takes me back to my childhood. It takes me back to when I was it 11. Perfectly their, describes being a kid. Yeah, their, their dialogue with each other, their hangout spot, like, that is too, like, that is basically what I had when I was 11. Me and the other neighborhood kids had our, like. For me, it was under a huge pine tree. Um, we had. Well, we first we built a bunch of wigwams, and then Dad actually helped us build um, teepees with canvas. And we had a whole, we each had our own fort, and we had a little village of forts. Um, That's amazing. That's and so good. we would, you know, scavenge old pots and pans, scavenge tree branches, uh, make potions out of things we probably shouldn't have been playing <laughs> with, with whatever we found. We even had a little garden and grew, like, pumpkins and shit. Like, yeah, I mean, that quarry, the chalk quarry, is just, like, what we did. And they even have, like, the pond with the, like, frog. The and, single like, solitary frog. Yeah, we we had one of those that we used to sled on. We found only, instead of a frog, we found a muskrat, which I brought home and got in. And I said, was my new pet? And mom was like, no, no. you <laughs> right no. now. I literally rode my bike, you know, no. around the neighborhood and literally rode my bike home with a muskrat on it one day. Like those four kids were my childhood and it makes them very, very relatable. The, the two things that really stick out to me from their conversations. One, uh, just as a very relatable anytime that like they'd say something, whether it was good or bad or something, and they'd all pause and give that due consideration, <laughs> uh, like consideration it merited and being like, where do we stand on that? And they're definitely little shitheads about some things and the way that little kids that don't fully understand life and death are sometimes like, yeah, all right. 
Yeah, that sounds yeah. pretty great. But it is also responsible for the single greatest throwaway line I have ever read in my life. That being? David Attenborough said it, so it must be true. <laughs> <laughs> it is the most perfect line ever written, and I will fight someone over this. <laughs> like, because I am 32, and I would still probably fall for something if David Attenborough just started saying weird fucking lies about animals and be like, animals are amazing. <laughs> yeah, he could just invent whatever, and, and I would be like, whoa. Yeah. David Attenborough just taught me. <laughs> I mean, as we've mentioned before on the show, one of our friends hanging out with us and none of us being particularly sober watching Planet Earth and she's just yelling, that's not real. <laughs> You're making this up. <laughs> uh, this book, and I, I guess my brain is connecting this because of David Attenborough, is so quintessentially British. No matter how, like, timeless and, you know, everything you said is absolutely true across cultures, what childhood is kind of like at mm -hmm. a certain age. But this is so fucking British, it hurts in some <laughs> places. I'm glad you brought that up because of the picture I have in front of me right now. Um, I'm so fascinated by this Pictionary version of note-taking that you're doing here. Well, this is funny because this is a picture that I make sure to take with every phone that I've ever owned hmm. and every copy of Good Omens I've ever had for all the times I might run across it when uh, reading <clears throat> anything historical or uh, fantasy that's based off of some version of uh, the old British currency system. Mm, yes. Terry yes. loves the British currency system. Uh, and so... If you all indul indulge me, please. I would like yes. to read this ridiculousness aloud. Yes, please. <clears throat> Note for young people and Americans. One shilling equal five P. It helps to understand the antique finances of the Witchfinder Army if you know the original British monetary system. Two farthings equal one half penny. <laughs> Two half pennies equal one penny. Three pennies equal threepenny bit. Two threepence equals a sixpence. Two sixpences equal one shilling or bob. Two bob equals a florin. One florin and one sixpence <laughs> equals half a crown. Four half crowns equal ten bob note. Two ten bob notes equal one pound or 240 pennies. One pound and one shilling equals one guinea. The British resisted decimalized currency for a long time because they thought it was too complicated. You know... As a part of a country that refuses to <laughs> switch to the metric system, I don't get to judge yeah. on that front. Um, I think it's in Dodger, the book he wrote in Victorian London, which also fucking read that book if you haven't. It's amazing. Uh, in the like afterwards where he's talking about how much he loves Victorian London, he talks about that system because it was still around when he was a kid mm -hmm. and how much he loves that system that he legitimately so thinks it's better. Like, not better, but, like, he gets why we don't have it anymore, but he's just like, oh, it was, such a, it was so good. <laughs> because so great. Because Terry's the most British man alive. Also, I notice we keep talking about him in the present tense, and I refuse to stop. He's still here with us every time we bring him up, which we... A lot. Often. <laughs> and we've got another, at least two more episodes about him coming up this year, so... That bit you just read is a footnote, and for 
like, this was probably the first book I read that used footnotes that was, like, a fiction book, not a, like... Mm. And it really, I think, uh, influenced my writing later on because I definitely love putting in footnotes. And I tend to also really love other writers who have used footnotes. It's interesting because I honestly don't know if I've ever read a Terry book. I have just listened to mm. just a metric fuck ton of Terry books because audiobooks. So I can usually tell where a footnote is, mm -hmm. but I'm not always sure if it's a footnote or not that I'm listening to because the pacing that Stephen Briggs and Nigel Planer, the two people that do the Discworld books and most of his other books as audiobooks, do a really good job of working it in. So like, you know, there's still that segue, but that it flows really well still while listening to it. Mm -hmm. Well, and there are some footnotes in here that are half a page. There's more <laughs> footnote than there is actual story on one of these. I think it's the one about um, packing a breakfast with you and like the ridiculous amount of like things that this, I think he was a poet would yeah. pack with him everywhere to like in like pots and pans so he would always cook himself a breakfast. That Six takes up, carefully placed eggs. Yes, like. that footnote takes up more of the page than the actual story. And that by itself is really fucking funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I wonder if this was weird to write for Neil, considering that it's still very much in that Terry style of like, it doesn't do chapters and it doesn't. And it has all of those footnotes like that is such a Terry writing staple that when he does do chapters, it's weird to me. Yeah. But I mean, maybe it wasn't because by that point he'd been reading the yeah. drafts of of the Discworld book. So maybe it felt natural by then because he had been part of that process enough. I don't know. Though. It's just such an inch. This seems like such an interesting shift in writing to switch from one to the other. I'm more curious. Yeah, and it's more organic. Also, Neil did comics, too, so at this point he's done several different versions of mm -hmm. writing, so it might not have been as... And it's not broke down as small as chapters, but there is Wednesday, Thursday, Thursday. Yeah. Friday. But some of those days are way longer than other yeah. days. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think, okay, who have we not talked... Because we've kind of talked about Shadow, we've kind of talked about they... Uh, the them. The them. The them. We haven't really talked about Adam. I don't know how much I have to say about Adam... Adam Okay, Adam okay. <laughs> might have been the character this time around I focused on most. Uh -huh. uh, I don't want to get into it too much. It's partially because of... He's the actual plot of this book? No, because of, I, I looked at him more just because of his portrayal in uh, mm -hmm. the miniseries. Mm -hmm. um, but we're going to talk about that more later. Yeah, we're trying to largely avoid... But anyways, I'm sorry. But that's why I focused in on it more, mm -hmm. was just because of having watched that and... Adam is kind of all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's Except he's this he's superhuman in the sense that we're all a little bit good and evil, and he's just exactly half and half, and mm -hmm. purely that. He would be a weird I mean, they talk about it him being a super compelling kid, but he'd be a super interesting kid to know because he as he is, he's half good, half evil, like straight up. And he'll do the random nicest things and then just the random, like, shittiest moments out of nowhere. He, and, I think what makes him the but, most But like 11-year-old shitty. Mm -hmm. Though, is that he's creative. Because, as we talked about a bit ago, um, Heaven and Hell are not creative. Like, 
humans are creative and Adam is so creative and he just sucks in any little bit of like exciting information and then like makes it even better in his head. He talks about that he doesn't enjoy reading comics because the stories he can come up with in his own head are so much more exciting. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much it actually breaks yeah. down, but Adam remi- is very reminiscent of most of Neil's other writings to me. Neil mm-hmm. really likes to write about how important stories are. Mm-hmm. It is a very Neil. I mean, it's a Discworld thing, too, where belief actually becomes mm-hmm. truth. Mm-hmm. Also, if anyone other than, I think, Neil Gaiman had written, uh, he doesn't like comics because they can't be interesting enough as Noah's head, I'd be like, hey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Neil writes, I'm like, hey, uh, all right, fair enough. Okay. <laughs> you have more say than I do. Um. Uh, although, um, Adam also talks about that he wrote a story once, and he's trying to te- cheer Ananthema up, who we've not talked about yet, um, when she has lost her book, and tells her that it's, a way probably that hit the book he wrote is probably way more exciting and that it cheered Brian up to no end and it, it's got like spaceships and cowboys, cowboys and, and pirates like, and, and it's only like five pages long but <laughs> apparently it's just an absolute trip so it is about the most author concept in the world that what makes us humans is creating stories mm-hmm. like of course, art likes to talk about how art is what makes us human, but... <laughs> That's, yeah. And, um, I agree with it, but I also make a lot of shit. It's also interesting in his introduction in the front, he's an Antichrist, mm-hmm. not the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. Um. I always feel bad for Warlock in this <laughs> one. Warlock. <laughs> Warlock and Gracie Johnson, the two kids that were... Kind of around Adam as little kids, like as well, baby babies, as baby babies, and <laughs> and kind of. Got I love them. how they're still remembered at the end because you always remember your first friends. But like, yeah. have a really weird fucking week because of this. Yeah, like right, Warlock, who everyone thinks is the Antichrist, uh, and who is actually um, the Young's baby. Yes, he so. The, the three of, like, it was supposed to be a straight up across swap between two babies. But there is a third baby that gets involved and it makes it a three-way swap. And so Warlock is who everyone thinks is the Antichrist. And he gets raised basically as a rich kid by... He's going to destroy the fucking world. He's right. connected to American diplomat or he's, something yeah, like that. Yeah, he's the son of an American attache and he's, yeah, all, you know, all this. He he gets to be raised as a spoiled brat with a tutor and, and nannies and all this stuff. Um, <laughs> I love that at the birthday party, him and his other 11-year-old friends are such hellions that Aziraphale's like, obviously he's evil. Clearly (laughs) this is the Antichrist. Um, Because they're little shits. And he is, like, at one point he, like, grabs a serviceman's gun and is, like, like, using, like, a toy, like, very, like, Mm -hmm. nasty, horrible rich kid. And then you have... Greasy Johnson, who was supposed to be born to the American diplomat mm-hmm. and who is built to play football. He is American football. Mm-hmm. And he becomes a bully because he accidentally, cr- like, 
steps on other little kids on yeah, accident. He became or a bully toys. out of self defense is a very relatable sentence as a very large kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like when I was a head taller than everyone else, and I'm like, oh god. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and so in order for him not get picked on, he kind of becomes a bully. And how he just like if he had just been where he was supposed to be, playing football in America, he would have like found his calling a lot sooner in life, and like it would have been, he would have he would have had a, an easier time. And I I love the their whole little. Um, you know, imagine the third baby is doing, you know, paint this really nice picture for you and you're going, oh my God, did they just like Did they just chuck out a baby? Did they just <laughs> this baby? And then later they like talk about Greasy Johnson and his like tropical fish like thing and you're like, and they go, see, you were right about the baby. He was fine. They didn't murder the baby. <laughs> well, and they get a, a nice little, uh, little ending like, Adam gives a nice little ending mm -hmm. to him at the end, too, which mm -hmm. was hilarious because Warlock's happy ending is he gets to go actually live in America mm -hmm. instead of being raised in Britain as the kid of the American diplomat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because what's better than going and living in America? They have 39 flavors of ice cream. Maybe right. more. What? <laughs> what? Makes that kind of sad, though, is he also talks about how much he likes being an American in Britain, specifically. Yeah. Um, and then Greasy Johnson sees the, the thing in, the, football, the, yeah. in the, the Tropical Fish magazine about football catching on. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, oh. <laughs> oh, wow, those guys look more like me than, you know, because all the other British sports are not designed for. No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe rugby, but. Uh... Yeah. We haven't talked about Anathema Device and Newton Pulsifer at all yet. Newton is very relatable in, like, that idea that he wants so badly to be good at something, and he's just naturally abhorrent at it. And he just, he wants it so bad. And I remember many times, you know, as a kid, like, finding, like, something that I just really wanted to be good at, and I just... Like, could, just goes like, wildly wrong. Yeah, science. I wanted to be a scientist so bad, and I would pull a, like a C in science class, and it was just so disappointing to like want it so badly. Mm -hmm. I also the other way that I relate to Newton is his car. Oh, Dick Turpin. Dick I had to Turpin. look up who Dick Turpin the was wasabi. like on the way here today because I did not. Highwayman. I know that now. <laughs> and he calls it Dick Turpin because it holds up traffic. <laughs> it holds up traffic wherever he goes. And I literally did not know what that joke meant. Because I didn't know who Dick Turpin was until about 20 minutes before we started recording. <laughs> and I finally was like, fuck it. I'm remembering now. I'm looking him up. That's why like, I have so many. Because so uh, every time I've read this book, I've picked up something I didn't pick up. Mm -hmm. Anytime I read it before. So this time when I read it, anything that I didn't immediately, that I thought was a reference to something that I didn't immediately get, I went and looked it up. And there was a lot of jokes in here that I did not catch until I went and looked them up. So most of the Bibles are real infamous Bibles. Yep. Most of the Bibles are real. Really? Yes. yes. Um, the the only, bugger all Bible? 
The, um, the only ones no, I the have the Charing in Cross and the Bugger All This Bible are the only, are the two. only two that didn't exist. All right, that's, I would have been so happy if the Bugger All This Bible was <laughs> real. The Unrighteous and the Wicked are exactly as they describe them. Mm-hmm. And then there's a few other infamous Bibles. That are not mm-hmm. listed in them. Uh, the Discharge Bible. This is fun. Uh, it's printed in 1806. Uh, and replaces discharge for charge in 1 Timothy 5.21. I discharge thee before God, and thou observe these things. <laughs> uh, there's the Treacle Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, popular name for the Bishop's Bible, 1568, because in Jeremiah 8.22 reads, There is no treacle in Gilead, instead of, Is there no balm in Gilead? It's a wildly different lesson right there. And the Standing Fishes Bible. Yes. Uh, it's an 1806 edition in which Ezekiel 47.10 reads, And it shall come to pass that the fishes, instead of fishers, mm-hmm. shall stand upon it. <laughs> Whatever literists that read those poor fucking Bibles. <laughs> there are a few others that I didn't look up, though. Uh, Ears to Ear Bible, Rosin Bible, uh, Rebecca's Camel's Bible are a few of the names. (laughs) That reminds me, they were listing off other seers other than um, Mm -hmm. Agnes Nutter. There was, the two ones they mentioned a lot was Nostradamus and there was a... Mother Shipton. Shipton. Who is Mother Shipton? I don't know. I haven't looked that much on Mother Shipton, but I know that she's... I know she's real. Oh, Real. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Given value of real. (laughs) Given value, yeah. Exactly. As real as Nostradamus. Is is a historical... Because there is many Nostradamus, is I think Mm -hmm. the thing. Is like, they all claim to be the the actual... But we have, you know, historical, like, reference to Mothership in real life, I guess Mm -hmm. is the way to phrase that, whether she was real or Have we ever told the story on this podcast that when Cece and I were cleaning out the house that we live in now, we found a bunch of, like, old Nostradamus was right videotapes? Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) We have some very exciting VHSs that we... We're gonna have some real bad movie nights. (laughs) Yeah, we're hoping to. There is... Yeah, there's some really good ones. I'm not going to get into it because that will take us way Because we're already doing but... a really long episode. Um... <laughs> I lived in the occult section of the library. That's all the shit that I used to read when I was growing up. It was great. Yeah, between the three of us, this book is, I mean, if we want to sum it up, it's just sort of like heroin for all three of us in different ways. Like, But all of those books of prophecy are inaccurate, in even in this yeah, because Agnes Nutter was the only one that was Agnes actually... Agnes Nutter was 100% completely accurate every time. And there is a note um, that they that the reason all those other prophets are inaccurate is because heaven catches on if somebody has a little bit of psychic power and starts... Either the person interferes with their own psychic wavelengths by drinking or doing way too many mushrooms mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. whatever... Um, but heaven will like send interference basically so that they don't have accurate prophecies. But Agnes was really good at avoiding all of that. And that's how she got away with it. It was basically, she was on to what heaven and hell were up to and was like, "Mm, not going to catch me. But that's also apparently why her book didn't sell. And there is only one copy of Agnes Nutter's uh, nice and accurate prophecies. 
I don't know. Yeah, the description of how Agnes would see things, I actually took a picture of it. <laughs> is, uh, Agnes was like someone looking at a huge picture down a tiny little tube. She wrote down what seemed like good advice based on what she understood of the tiny little glimpses. Because uh, it's not enough to just see the future, you have to know what it means. Mm-hmm. And they talk about some of the weird, because she had to guess what she thought would be important to write down. So, like, the day JFK was killed, her prediction about it was a building collapsing in some British town. Mm-hmm. Because, because someone lives in that British town be. that, yeah, like, yeah. she's like, well, I know one of my descendants is going to live in that British town. So that's probably way more important than whatever the fuck Dallas is like. Yeah. Um. The actual uh, prophecies that they include in the book were some of my favorite things, Mm because you're just piecing through them and be like, oh, yeah, okay, I see what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, and some of them, there was one that I was laughing at this time reading through. Actually, I was laughing at it more when we were listening to the audio um, book, was where she's prophesizing... uh, Crowley and Aziraphale showing up to Warlock's birthday party, waiting for the Hellhound to show up. And of course, instead, it finds Adam, who names it Dog, which takes the Hell part of the Hellhound out. It becomes literally a dog instead of a fiery beast. But when when we're reading this prophecy, or when we're reading this prophecy in the book, it's Anathema and Newt are looking at it, and she's like, clearly, this is nonsense because. Anathema has didn't witness all of this to see what happened. Right. She's trying to tie it into how it, you know, ties directly to her and her family. And it in a way it does, but not close enough. Like she has no idea. Mm-hmm. Aziraphale, on the other hand, when he reads it, he's like, oh, holy shit. fuck. He's reading like he's basically he's been on round for all of this time that this book has been out. And he's able to read this and know exactly what she's talking about. And so he can read her prophecies like a novel. Mm-hmm. So he reads about himself and Crowley and <laughs> He's knows just exactly. Like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> I have those two right here. I'm good. All right. The, the hellhound one. Sorry. I, this is the, some of the only things I took pictures of. Cause I'm like, I enjoy these so much. You just, yeah. you look so proud of yourself here. Uh, the hellhound one as the great hound shall come, and the two powers shall watch in vain for it goeth where it's math. For go where is its master, where they wot not, and he shall name it, true to its nature, and hell shall flee it. And then right under that, 120-ish pages before it actually happens, uh, I see four riding bringing the end, and the angels of hell ride with them, and three shall rise, and four and four together be four, as the dark angel shall own defeat, yet the man shall claim his own. Basically, she predicts the end of the book. Right there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Doesn't make any lick of fucking sense if you don't, like, Mm -hmm. have the... Yeah, this is a book made for being listened, read, listened to, whatever, like, eight times. Yeah. Uh, Dog was another one I noticed here more than, like, for whatever reason, he just did pop us. I love Dog. Dog just being like, are you kidding me? I just finally got to be a dog. This is yeah. great. I need to go experiment with the cat. Right. <laughs> I'm running experiments with the cat. I just finally think I got that German shepherd figured out. Dog <laughs> has been on Earth like two or three days at this point, And Dog is like, I am not done 
being on Earth. Yeah. Like, I have important dog things that I need to do. And the whole scene where Dog first pops up, too, and we haven't really actually met Adam and them yet. That's the first time, isn't it? Right, because we've been following Crowley and Aziraphale, who are messing around with Warlock's life, and then the Hellhound doesn't show up, and that's when we switch to, well, where is the Hellhound? And he's sneaking up on these kids in his full, like... Like, Slavering comes up a lot yeah, of things. Like, he's like dripping saliva that steams on the sidewalk, and he's just like, you know, the most evil sounding dog ever. And he's like spying on his master who's in the chalk quarry. And Adam describes the perfect mutt, the most dog of dogs. And this hellhound is like sensing something's wrong. There is something not. Right, like, I'm supposed to get named, like, Stocks of Night or, like, some, like... And he just, like, pop and becomes this little terrier mutt thing. Mm -hmm. And at first he's like, this can't be right. And then he's like, you know what? This is okay. This is great. And then he becomes the most dog of all dogs. Um... Him and yeah, he does fantastic dog things. He rolls in cow pies. He (laughs) buries bones. Um, he tries to cheer Adam up at one point by like exhuming a bone that he buried several days ago and bringing it to him Mm -hmm. because he thought it'd make him happy. And when Adam ignores him, he goes and buries it again. (laughs) I had something. I had something from before we started talking about dog and I have lost it. So, uh. Dog is perfect. Yeah. Basically. Oh, uh, the the four other horsemen of the apocalypse because yes. they're not in the show. Oh. So if we're gonna talk about them, we gotta talk about them right now. That's a good point. Oh, uh, yes. And I've got a buddy that has fish and chips tattooed on his hands. And Cece was the first person to, and I didn't get the joke. But you hadn't you, listened to Good Omens yet. I think that's what made us do it. That may have been what Dio had that on his, and I noticed, and I was like, oh my god, you, that's a reference to. Um, good omens. And he was so excited that I got the reference. And I think that's when he told you that you had to marry me. Yes. Because mm. uh, he sent me a tattoo of fish and chips. And I was like, Dio, what the fuck? Right. That's right. Because he had just gotten that tattooed on his knuckles and sent you the picture. And you showed it to me, like, because you wanted me to be upset with you. Like, why the fuck would someone get this tattoo on their knuckles? What is wrong with you? And I was like, I was like, that's amazing. That's a reference to good omens. I was like, okay, I've been meaning to for a while. Yep, that's right. That's why. And you were the first person to ever get that. Um, I grew up around bikers. Not like hardcore Hell's Angels, but God's honest truth, bikers are kind of dipshits. Like, <laughs> biker culture, there's a lot of things I really deeply love about it, but there's just kind of a bunch of lovable dipshits that like motorcycles is biker culture in a nutshell. For good and ill. Um, and so their summary of... Pig bog. And scuzz. And, or eventually... Uh, Grievous bodily harm, <laughs> cruelty to animals, really cool people, or is that also cruelty to animals? Uh, uh, he changes his name multiple times. Uh, non-alcoholic logger. Yep. Uh, <laughs> just those. I haven't heard that conversation, but I've heard that level of like weirdness conversation coming from bikers. Um, let's see. Their original names... Big Ted, Greaser, Pigbog, and Scuzz. 
and they decide, well, we need to, if we're the other four horsemen of the apocalypse, we need to pick uh, names that go along with war, famine, pollution. Because um, pestilence retired. Because <laughs> pestilence retired. <laughs> Fucking penicillin. <laughs> <laughs> and death. And that's when they come up with grievous bodily harm, um, embarrassing personal problems, cruelty to animals, and then uh, things not working properly even after you've thumped them. Formerly, or also known as, he right. had like six. Right, he keeps changing it. Those really cool people. Uh, uh, never technically non-alcoholic lager. Uh, yeah, see, uh, but secretly no alcohol lager. <laughs> um, who, again, changes his name once again later. And then, like, later when, when they find out why there's only four horsemen of the apocalypse that actually make it to the apocalypse um, by crashing into a pile of fish... <laughs> and they fucking pull. I think it's Pigbog is the only. No, oh. it's Scuzz is the last survivor, mm-hmm. and the police who watched them basically commit suicide are asking like, "What is? What happened here? What happened? What is your name?" And God, I wrote it down. They ask him, or they say they say something to him about like who he is, and he says, "No, I'm not. I'm." And people covered in fish. <laughs> and then, like... <laughs> God, I laughed so hard this read-through at that line. Just... It's a very Monty Python uh yeah, I'm sorry not moment. on people covered in fish. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, it was Scuzz. Yeah. Poor Scuzz. He, like, watches all of his friends eat fish, basically. And... <laughs> There was apparently a lot... <laughs> Treading in dog shit. Formerly all foreigners, especially the French, formerly things not working properly when you give them a good thumping. Never actually no alcohol longer. <laughs> Briefly embarrassing personal problems, formerly known as scuzz. <laughs> um, apparently, and Terry's just been like, no, they're not the same. But apparently in like the Pratchett fan groups, there's a whole lot of debate on if death is the same Discworld death. Because it follows a lot of the same rules of mm-hmm. Terry writing about death. Mm-hmm. Uh, the no quotation marks, the always capital. Always all caps. Um, the general look. Um, it has been confirmed that it is not the same death. Well, because death, Discworld death, is the death of Discworld specifically. Like, mm-hmm. And he talks that there's a higher power he goes up to who is Azrael. Well, this one calls himself Azrael. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's supposed to be the same Azrael, but still, I just think of it as like, uh, fucking Discworld describes themselves as a different path on the uh, trouser leg of time, mm. or somewhere in a shaky, unstable parallel universe or something like that. Same thing here. Mm-hmm. He's death, but he's different death. Mm-hmm. He's death, but he's not death. But he's death. He's yeah. definitely death, but he's not death. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and and as they talk about like. They have these personifications of war, um, famine, pollution, and death, which all live in the hearts and minds of mankind. But death is the only one that even the even the personification doesn't isn't harmed. Mm-hmm. In, like because there will oh, there could someday be no more war. There could someday be no more pollution or famine. But there will always be death. Yeah, and even the other four or the other three horsemen talk about that they know. That they realize that, that, like, 
death is the only one of the four of them who could potentially last an eternity. They might last an eternity, but even death could come for them someday. Uh, fucking Which what's... is why Adam stands across from him, because he's the only one that can, because he's the ultimate creator. Mm-hmm. Hey, opposites again. What are the chances in this book? Um... Speaking of Adam and how who he represents, um, I didn't catch it the first few times I read the book um, that he... Like, and it should be obvious because he's named Adam that he is literally a parallel to Adam by naming dog, mm-hmm. naming dog, dog, just mm-hmm. as Adam names the animals in the Bible. His um, love of stealing apples. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I feel God, like there was something. I did not catch either of those things. Yeah, he, uh, he, they, they make him directly reference Adam of the Bible. In a couple of spots. And that's why he's also, like, the ultimate, like, human. I thought that was a really... And like I said, I didn't catch it the first couple of times I read it. And it should be just so obvious. And then you look at it and you go, yeah, that was a really... Like, they weren't even hiding that Adam is Adam. I've always been kind of curious how this book is. I mean, I know you love it and you grew up going to church. But for people who grew up in a Christian background since it's so deep into Christian theology in so many parts, because I, I did not. I came up in about the most agnostic way you could come up. Um, uh, let's see, I used to attend Mass every Sunday. I would also attend my Protestant friends' uh, praise and worship service and help them run a couple Bible study groups at one point. And I... F- and the book of Revelation is my favorite book of the Bible when I used to read it a lot. It's so wild. It's so, fucking crazy bonkers. So and so I fucking love this we, so much. <laughs> we, at art school, we went through the book of Revelations because we were looking at um, Durer's woodcuts mm. because he he illustrates the book of Revelations and he does it literally. So... If you like, if you haven't read the Book of Revelations and you assume based on preachers and their thing that it's just like brimstone and fire and like, yeah, they're gonna like take all of the good people to heaven and they're gonna send all the sinners to hell. No, there is so much crazy shit that happens in that book, and there's a lot of like numbers are very important. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the person who is it? It's not John. Who is John it? John of It is John, who's basically writing all this down and it's kind of like saying like this is what i'm witnessing this is what's being shown to me he literally eats a book and <laughs> like i'm sorry he just he <laughs> eats a book you guys and mm-hmm. and this is why when there's like people who talk about like oh the bible's meant to be taken literally i'm like it's not i don't think it it's, is guys it's, it's meant it's supposed to be a metaphor that is teaching and if you are one of these people who says, no, it's literal, this is literally history, and then we are supposed to take it literally, go read the book of Revelations and then come tell me how you are supposed to take. Well, and in some of these cases, these are like two or three thousand year old metaphors. Mm-hmm. Right. So we don't That's always even real. necessarily know exactly, like, or at least understand in the way that someone of the era could understand that metaphor. Right. We're like, we think it this and it is yeah and that and like i said because durer made very literal illustrations of the entire book of revelation so you can look at him 
those illustrations and be like, that's weird. This that man, wacky. that man's eating a book. That's kind of crazy. Why is there seven candles and why is there all of this like weird? And, he, and once it, it's like, you're like, oh, this is just weird, like symbolism. And then you realize, no, he. Somebody's been eating too many mushrooms. Yeah. But he was just trying to make a literal illustration what was in there. Um, which I, we had so much fun. Um, that was the my history of printmaking class, I think, when we... That class alone just sounds awesome. It was great, especially because it was my favorite professor teaching it, so we didn't take notes. <laughs> he literally would stop at the library on the way, grab a book, and then basically we would sit in, like, kindergarten, like, circle time, and he would just, like, point at pictures, and we'd just talk about it. No tests, no notes... That's the way to do a history class, guys. I would learn more in that than I would probably anything else. So real quick, just to give the full and my complete history with religion growing up. My dad, anytime he was near a church and still will tell the story that the one thing he learned in Sunday school and neither of us are knocking on religion. We should say this here. More, it's just but the one thing he learned how to do in Sunday school was how to put his leg to sleep. Because if his leg went to sleep, his mom would let him get up and wander around in the back for a while. And my stepmom doubted him. So he did it at a wedding. <laughs> they were at, so, she, so he would have to walk funny and make and be like, I told you so. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. All that background and that's part of it. Like I said, when it was described as the book of Revelation as rewritten by Monty Python, I'm like, oh, I'm very intimately <laughs> familiar with book Revelation. Let's do this. And I'm intimately familiar with Monty Python. Let, yeah. let us go and love it. I don't know. So the thing about like the references, the references to actual religion things rather than just mm-hmm. making up a religion some of them are very like broad and could be like any number of Christian sects. Some of them are um, talking. Oh, actually, a lot of what they make reference to is more historical things and less like the literal Bible. Um, I had to finally go look up when they they make they're talking about a Xerophel and that he's technically a principality, but many people make jokes about principalities. So I was like, and I and I had heard other people talk about like, well, if Xerophel is a principality, that means he's technically higher up on the hierarchy of angels. And I, it was just like over my head. I'm like, I don't know. I know nothing about higher. Well, that stuff's not in the Bible. Right. This is like later. Fan fiction. Ba- yeah, this is basically like basically the hierarchy of angels was like written thousands of years later by whatever religious expert. I don't you wouldn't necessarily want to call them like a preacher or a priest or anything. That explains but, the Night Vale joke about the religious hierarchy of angels. Yes. So they set out like a religious hierarchy of angels and Aziraphale as a principality is definitely not the highest but he's there. technically but he's higher up there. Technically, might be higher up than Gabriel. I went deep diving into this. He's maybe not. <laughs> he's angel middle management. But basically, what a principality's job is, it's the fifth highest order of the ninefold celestial yep. hierarchy. The principality's job is to guide and protect nations or peoples and the church. They preside over bands of angels. That's why, um, they talk about when he's supposed to be getting summoned to go fight on the battlefield. Like he is supposed to actually be a leader on that. Like (laughs) (laughs) they're like, come on, dude, you got troops waiting. Um, 
And they're supposed to be educators and guardians inspiring living things towards art and science. And that's the joke they're making is that like humans have kind of where humans have gone with art and science isn't necessarily in alignment with what heaven meant when they were supposed to be inspiring that and encouraging that. And that's why uh, Zero Fail as a principality has become kind of a joke is. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, there was some discourse on Tumblr at one point um, because of Raphael and Gabriel and Michael being higher ranking than or basically pushing a zero fail around mm-hmm. when technically principalities are higher ranking than um, archangels mm-hmm. that they are supposed to be under. But there's also some disagreement among circles about everything where an archangel, <laughs> like which, because there's two different archangels and which ones Gabriel <laughs> actually are. And a related note, also to Book of Revelations being wacky and crazy, the description of the highest ranking angels, the like seraphim, that's where some of those crazy... I fucking love them. Yeah, so those crazy images of like angels that are just like a bunch of eyes. and, and 40 wings. And those are like the highest ranking angels and that's like not the like angel figurines that my grandma collected that I just like sold a hundred of because some of those were horror shows, but in a completely different way. Right. They're not like pretty women with wings and flowers. Right. What is some of them? It's just like, uh, what, like three sets of wings, but only one of the sets are actually flying. The other one's just to cover the eyes and the feet and shit. Very Guillermo del Toro shit. Yeah. 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 Like the, the definition of what angels are supposed to look like is, frightening wild and it's so much cooler i would have gotten so much more just why they always show up with the like be not afraid shit yeah like (laughs) they're like hey don't freak out while this poor human who just had like way too many funny mushrooms they found is like (laughs) is there anything in this that you guys didn't like so there's a part where they're at the hospital and you meet Mr. Young, Adam's human father. And he's such an asshole. <laughs> um, like, I like him later in the book where he is like classic dad. He has a mustache. He like follows the manual with his car. All like that whole like he and he has just like the most frustrating child Yeah, like, you know, he's a frustrated dad when he like later in the book. But Mm -hmm. when he's waiting in the hospital for Deidre, Deidre, I think so, to have Mm -hmm. the baby, Oh, the bit where he doesn't want anything to do with it. And he's like, I'm all for he's a little overwhelmed by the nuns. And and like and that's funny. But there's this part where like, like she's gotten really into like yoga and health food and like being an independent woman. And he's not okay with. Her, yeah, it's her becoming basically a more like 70s, 80s style woke mom versus like a housewife. Like she's mm-hmm. moving into feminism and he's not sure he's OK with it. And he's kind of a sexist. Oh, no, he sucks in that bit. You're right. He's, yeah, uh, it, it's that very kind of quintessential like, oh, this is what my parents had growing up. Clearly, I'm going to have that, too. And then it didn't turn out. And mm-hmm. part of a generation got real shitty because of it. 
Yeah. And he has just such white male privilege. The way, like, it's, it's always been, like, funny in the past, but this time when I read it, it felt, it hit differently, I think. And I don't know if that's because of recent current events, or I couldn't quite tell how much of it was, uh, was meant to be taken literally versus, like, satire. Like, most of it still felt like satire, but there was a few ways it was phrased at times where I was like, ooh, this is hitting in a way that it doesn't quite feel, and maybe, maybe it's because I'm a woman, and maybe it's... And gender relations have changed in the last 30 years. So stuff yeah. that, like, at the time was like, oh, it's kind of funny. Now you're like, that was kind of funny 30 years ago. Now... Yeah, and and once again, it was kind of hard to, you know, because it flows into, like, his voice, like, you know, his, like, voice, voice of character versus the voice of the authors. And you're not quite sure always where the line is because you know, how this is written, there's a lot of main characters. There's not one main character that you are following their, like, thought process in. The, like, Terry and Neil take you into the thoughts and behind the scenes of all of these different characters. And it just kind of flows through the book, and you don't always quite know when it's the narrators making an off comment and when it's literally, like, just the thought Mm -hmm. process of the person occasionally. And then I had one moment when we were talking about Mr. Young where I was a little uncomfortable because I couldn't quite, I couldn't quite tell where Mr. Young began and where. I've had that with Terry a few times. Uh, and we talked about it a bit at Man at Arms, which, you know, we picked because it's one of my favorite books. And then we just talked about how problematic it was, like the whole <laughs> fucking episode. But it was still very good. And so is this. You once mentioned that you have a friend that won't fuck with Terry Pratchett just because it's another well, I've white... I've heard of people okay. that won't. Yeah, yeah, I don't know anybody personally. That are just but... like, no, nah, man, I don't need another white, old British guy telling me fantasy stories. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I get it. There are bits of... I think Terry's white privilege and white male, you know, upper-class British privilege shines through a little bit. As much as he makes fun of that, he's not immune to it mm-hmm. either. I think he significantly... Better than a lot of white male privilege, but the point of privilege is we all have it. So, mm-hmm. like, well, and if you, you know, we talk about, you know, he's not the only one writing this. Neil is also there writing mm-hmm. this, but Neil has been ahead of his time with a lot of like write, like a lot of his writing and how he writes characters, but hasn't necessarily gotten stuck in an era like we've talked about Joss Whedon has gotten stuck mm-hmm. um, to the point of being like uh, you were ahead 15 years ago and now you are way behind and you are like picking the wrong hill you're to die on. You're pissed that you're behind and instead of doing <laughs> right. anything to fix it. Neil has worked really hard you know he was very ahead putting trans um, characters in and when people have asked him about it, he said, well, because I know trans people in real life, so why wouldn't I put them in? Mm-hmm. And he's, when people have asked him about, like, things that he's done in works from a long time ago that weren't written very well, including things from this book, he has said, times change. Um, there was actually a part that recently came up on um, Tumblr where... 
either him or Terry wrote that a computer was um, had the like processing system of a retarded ant. And someone said, like, that's like not a no, like that's a slur. And he's was very like, yes. And we've actually considered taking that word out of future prints because back then it wasn't a slur yet. And we didn't weren't using it as an offense to people with mm-hmm. mental differences. We like it was just a word that people used in general. And so he but he says, like, going forward, that is one of several words we have looked at changing or have changed or have cut out in editions of the book as it has been reprinted over time. And I think that's great because a lot of people, if they make create something and it's out of date, instead of going back and fixing it, they might be, well, it's a product of its time. And he says it was a product of its time, but also going forward, there's um, no reason to have it in there. Yeah, I I think there's real arguments for both sides of of a product of its time, but it also very much depends. If there's a living author who, like, Neil's like, no, I should update it. 100%, yes, absolutely, you are correct. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean you can't appreciate older stuff that are products of their time. Someone else going back to someone else's work, I have more of a problem with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But going back to your own work and being like, oh, boy, more power to you. Yeah. Um, I was, you know, taught not to say that, uh, because my grandma uh, was a special education teacher. Mm. So, like, from a real early age, dad was taught that, so I was taught that. But even still, even with that, like, don't, you know, don't say that, it came up a lot just because it was such a common word when we were children. Yes. Which doesn't make it okay, but it does... Mm-hmm. It was, and it wasn't used... It wasn't supposed to be used as a, like insult to people um, with difference, like mm-hmm. neuroatypical, you know, people. It was meant as a generalized, like, oh, this is, this is dumb. Why is this like this? Mm-hmm. Um, but basically it was like throwing that, the, like those people, mm-hmm. it was dehumanizing those people to use that term. And, and when we were kids, we didn't really understand that and that kind of went with us into adulthood but now we're all you know woke or <laughs> we're <laughs> trying, trying to be we're trying to be um and so we understand like wow when you use like a word to describe inanimate objects because they're like you know being frustrating but you use a word that describes a human as well you dehumanize them so lots of things change over time what their meaning is. That doesn't mean you get to be like, well, that word didn't originally mean this because it, it's, it's offensive now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was something I ran into that I thought was just unusually dark, if you know anything yeah. about it. Uh, when Aziraphale starts doing the body hopping bit, mm. trying to figure out somewhere to, that he can actually help. One of the bodies he jumps into is a weird reference. Uh, he jumps in the body of Citrone du Chavot. <laughs> is that the... Who they originally say he's a Tonton Makut. Oh, okay. Hongan. I someone else. Uh, Hongan's the correct term. 
mm-hmm. by a long shot. Hongan is a uh, voodoo priest, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tonton Makut is one of two things. Uh, it's the Haitian boogeyman who goes around and kidnaps kids and throws them into a sack, beats them, and then eats them for his breakfast. Tonton Makut was also the name for the paramilitary force that uh, was created by Papa Doc Duvalier when he was in charge of Haiti from 59 through 70 and committed untold numbers of human rights abuses, murders, rapes, um, tortures across the entire nation. Oh, shit. (laughs) I did not know this. I also dipped in when I got to that part in this reading was like was very curious about like how how much research and accuracy they Terry and Neil actually went and did before they wrote that bit um because they clearly have a lot of knowledge on historical references and biblical references but voodoo or voodoo is very very unique is a very unique religion mm-hmm. and so I kind of like very lightly skimmed the surface looking up a couple terms and things and it became clear to me really quickly like they didn't really know what they were talking about when they wrote that character and luckily he's in it for like five sentences right right that Uh, was a very early 90s thing of like voodoo and like even like when you're trying to but being like oh you're just laughably bad at this right and they were you know they were trying to write an interesting character and then you know, make it clear that, like, anyone who was trying to connect spiritually somewhere had was opening basically a door for Aziraphale to, like, hop in. But it was one of those where I almost feel like it, the, the religion wasn't... I feel like it would have been better if they would have just left off at Hongan. Right. <laughs> or, like, stuck to... And maybe left off the footnote about voodoo being an interesting religion for family that's alive or dead. Right. Like, it was a little... Oh, yeah, I forgot about that, though. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was... It was almost like... It's one thing to make fun of Christians and white people religion. Especially when you are white people. (laughs) But when you... And I think that's the thing, is this whole book is making fun of white people and white people religion. But then when you try to throw in, like, oh, we're going to make fun of, like, basically any religion. Like, the scene after that where they're making fun of the American evangelical. Oh, my God. That that scene lands a little too real these days. Holy fuck, is it well written. Like, I have the same physical repulsion, like, sensation reading that scene as I do seeing that in real life. But, once again, like, when you are not a black person, person who's a part of that kind of religion and you try to poke fun of it as a religion you're not trying to be racist but you did it you uh-huh. you crossed the line whether you meant to or not you don't tell coot thing is just dark it's dark but yeah like i mean there's just you know and i don't know a ton about voodoo but i know a little bit mm-hmm. and from quick searches and from some um other things that we've yeah read over the years or, or looked at. Um, but this is also not the only time Terry uses voodoo. He does it in Witches Abroad. Witches Abroad. 
basically they go to the Discworld equivalent of New Orleans mm. and it's a great book, but there are parts of it. And I, I was a little more forgiving in Discworld. Discworld gets, you know, can borrow from whatever it wants and make its own thing. But it still when does I feel read a little it, weird. Right. When I there was parts of it where I was like, is this like a white person playing make believe with voodoo and they don't really understand it and they're they're not understanding it is a real religion. There are people who really follow this and like making fun of it's not. Terry okay. does it a couple of times. He has some stuff about Native white... Americans that where he made a joke too that mm-hmm. was like, oh, the other one. When he's talking about Tibetans or the Thai monks talking about giving them tea and Yancid rack but yak butter. Sorry. For whatever reason, just the fact that he obsessively adds the word rancid to it. As bugs opposed, the hell out as of opposed to like fermented or, you know, some mm-hmm. other term that doesn't sound. And it could be a terminology thing that I'm not getting, or it could be Terry's white privilege showing. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Now I'm curious. But I feel like after we listened to Witches Abroad and then their voodoo came up in here, I was that's when I was a little more like, oh, this is someone who has read enough, like, gathered, like, soaked up enough about it over the years without really asking someone who actually is when, familiar with voodoo. And so they're just, ta- like, handpicking the interesting rumors about it rather than, like... There was a quote when he was writing Pyramids, when he was taught, because that, that was his Egypt Discworld book. And he said that he bought a bunch of books about Egypt's mythology and then quickly like left them on the shelf because he couldn't make up anything as weird as what they were doing in that. <laughs> and like the line makes me laugh. But also, if you're going to make a book based off Egypt, that's not a great way to go into it or voodoo mm-hmm. or so. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it, but I'm going to go with that one, too, of things that I don't like, even if I thought the scene was funny for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I don't know. It also just always reminds me, I... Hey everybody, General Tyler here. So while editing this section, I realized that the story I told, uh, due to the seriousness of the situation, probably included some details that just weren't mine to to share with the world. Uh, The ultimate point is that it's just super dark and heartbreaking to call the character both a Hongan and a Tonton Makut, as through people deeply connected to the region, I've heard accounts of those things coming together all too tragically, possibly even up through the present day. So there you go. That's that's the long and short of it. Well, shit. <laughs> God, this was dark. No wonder. I, now I'm really <laughs> getting what you're dark. saying there. <laughs> That's yeah. That's why I was suddenly like, "What the f- okay?" Right? Whatever. Yeah. Why are you throwing? Yeah. Why throw that in there? And I think it was just a white privilege thing of not bothering to check mm-hmm. to check the history. Um, that was something that came up in art school all the time. Was was there is your intent, but there is also your intent being misread, or like you need to. The reason you need to do your research is someone might completely misread what the hell you meant. Like what you, what you're in, if your intent doesn't come across the way you mean it to, you can offend. Then it doesn't really matter. Then you end up talking about five sentences for 20 minutes. 
Right. <laughs> on that note, and I really hate to kind of try to wrap up this conversation because it's amazing, but also we've been going for like three hours now. Eh. Um, do we have any last thoughts on the book before we... Let's end with something happy. Please! <laughs> we need to end with my favorite scene. Absolutely. Which, you, off mic, you already let slip what it is, and I'll agree that it's also my favorite scene. It's the drunk scene. <laughs> it is... I can't go through this drunk. <laughs> it is... So, so I recommend, rather than have us read it aloud, go find David Tennant, who plays Crowley in the um, series. He does a live reading of just this scene that is phenomenal, is very good. But to kind of cap on the night that Adam is brought to Earth... Crowley goes and finds Aziraphale, his one friend who's been on Earth the whole time he has, even though they're not really supposed to be friends. They, they are. Buddies. Um, they and, might be romantic. We can talk about that more next week. Yeah. <laughs> um, and to deal with the fact that neither of them really wants the world to end, they get absolutely shit-faced. And this scene just cracks me up so much every time... Crowley is trying to explain to Aziraphale why he doesn't really want Heaven to win. Aziraphale's like, of course I want Heaven to win. And oh, yes. Crowley okay. says, okay, well, let's talk about what eternity is. And is trying to describe eternity. And Aziraphale keeps interrupting him. And they're, they're just, they are so shit-faced. And basically, as they're trying to, like comprehend what it would mean for either side to win this thing and for earth to be destroyed and either heaven reigns for eternity or hell reigns for eternity neither option sounds good and they both just go oh my god this is too much i can't handle this drunk like (laughs) this this mental and emotional strain is too much and they both sober up but just that is one of my favorite scenes in any kind of media of all time. It's just so well written. And if you've ever been drunk and trying to have a philosophical conversation with someone and you're both too drunk to handle it and you go just a little too far and you're suddenly just really sad. <laughs> um, I really love from that scene that almost all the good musicians are in hell and almost mm-hmm. all the good choreographers are in heaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Um, whenever I try to comprehend the idea of infinity, I think of that scene <laughs> and the description of the bird and only In the opening spaceship. credits of the, of the music. He's got, got a spaceship. Yeah, sure. Whatever. Whatever you need for me to get through this metaphor of eternity, we can put the bird in a spaceship. That's fine. Uh, and, and, oh, and, and there's like a line where they're talking about gorillas and one of them says, they build nests, you know, and the other one's like, no, that's birds. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Recommendations? Is that what we're on? Yeah, I think so. And it, uh, other than this book, but uh, yeah. we could we easily this book. We could easily book. talk about this book for another two or three hours, but we should not. Despite uh, us going dark, this book. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, fuck, I had one. Kazar by Mark Wade and Andy Kubert. K- uh, specifically this Kazar series. Kazar is a character from Marvel Comics who is a ripoff of a ripoff of Tarzan. 
because there was a Khazar before this who was, what if there were dinosaurs in Tarzan stories for old pulp novels? And Stan Lee admits that he had never read a single goddamn Khazar book in his life, but he liked the name and he liked the jungle man with dinosaurs concept. So he put that in an X-Men comic. <laughs> nice. Um, and Mark Wade in the 90s, they had this brief period of the Avengers and the Fantastic Four have died. These are the two biggest comic teams. And what is the Marvel Universe afterwards? And they bumped forward some books that they hadn't fucking held forever because no one cares about Kazar in 1996. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they did Heroes for Hire as well. And you know, several of these. And it was kind of examining for a while what the Marvel Universe is like with all the big heroes gone. And putting Kazar in the middle of New York during that time is just a really fun concept. And then they somehow make this a really deep examination of parenthood and like how that affects your relationship with your partner after you have a child. I say deep. It is also still jungle man running (laughs) through with his uh, pet tiger Zabu. And okay. his wife, uh, pet saber tooth tiger Zabu. Yes. And his wife, uh, Shauna the She-Devil, who is a former S.H.I.E.L.D. agent who decided, fuck this, uh, fuck this real modern world. I'm going to go fucking. I'm going feral. I'm going feral. <laughs> and her husband, who grew up in feral world, that's like. Holy shit, Walkmans. Because, I mean, 1996. So, like, this exploring this explosion of modern technology, too. Um, so it's everything I love about 90s comics with surprising depth at the same time. And you don't usually get those two things together. So, Kazar. Kazar. Okay. Cece? I would love it if more people read Geek Love by Catherine Dunn. It is unlike any other book I've read, and I think that's one reason I really, I really like it, and I think everyone should read it. I will say, I when we read it um, in art school, like the people who liked it really liked it, and other people like could not get into it and just did not like it. So it may, is not for everyone. Um, the premise is it is told in first person, and the narrator is part of a family of carny freaks. And they are literally um, the uh, owners of this traveling circus. Things aren't going well so financially for their, for their traveling show, so they literally start playing around with drugs and breeding their own carnies. By, with their own children, basically. So oh. the the husband and wife team literally start doing a shit ton of drugs and chemicals and giving birth to carny freaks. And a lot of them die at birth, and they actually have, like, a trailer of formaldehyde babies that didn't survive things. It's the next audiobook we're reading, and I'm really excited, but I can also completely understand why this book does not land for well, some people. And, <laughs> and so, so I thought it was fascinating, because it's, like I said, it's one of these children is the narrator, and basically it follows their whole childhood uh, going, traveling all over the United States. They talk about real places, um, and the narrator's telling this in more of like a present time and like is looking back on this life and things get 
very crazy. There's cult stuff that happens. Um, there's um, very complicated sibling uh, sibling disagreements because they are, I mean, they're not normal kids, but also there's a lot of like, they're still kids. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of like normal childhood stuff mixed with the fact that they are um, carny freaks and some people don't, don't handle them well. They don't treat them like normal kids. Um, but uh, it's a fascinating um, story. The main character who's reading this is a complicated um, character, not only because she's a carnivore, you know, a, a, an atypical person, but she um, has very complicated feelings about what's going on. She didn't grow up a normal childhood. She has very... You don't agree with her uh, sometimes. You're like... Oldie, you need to not do the stupid thing. How, why, why? Are you? Stop. <laughs> um, Stop. But at the same time, you really do care about her and her, you know, happiness and well-being. Like, she drives you a little crazy because of that. So I highly recommend it. Uh, most people the, the who don't like it, it's because they're like, I cannot relate to a family of carny freaks. But I found... I found their story very compelling in the fact that I think despite the fact that they are freaks and geeks and, and, you know, living not a normal childhood, they are very human in their emotions and mm. their handling of, you know, their selfishness, their, their acting out, uh, uh, is a very like human thing. And it just, yeah, it kind of sucks you in. It goes places you definitely don't expect Please, that was Geek Love by Catherine Dunn. How many times do they bite the heads off of live chickens in it? More than um, once? So they, they do talk about it. Um, the mother of all of the children was originally a geek. If you don't know, a geek is someone who bites the heads off of live chickens. Uh, and that well, was... That's a word that's changed over time. <laughs> and that is a... Uh, that's why we're not general geekery. Yes, that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's how the uh, the that's her husband the her husband falls in love with her is <laughs> Only one. is he was the uh, I guess the ring announcer for the show and whoever the geek was supposed to be didn't show up so she went out there in her white um, like showgirl you know supposed to just be pretty to look at and bit the heads <laughs> off of live chickens covered in herself in blood basically and that's how he falls in love with her and then they and <laughs> then some they, great things about circus culture and there's some really horrific and then they go and then they go make some horrific babies by doing uh, so much cocaine and like <laughs> God, yeah and they she she um comes up throughout the book not only like when she's being the mother to these children but um later she is the craziest old lady. Like, she does not age well after doing all of those drugs. Um, yeah, she's she's a wild character. But yes, heads of chickens um, are bit off at... Geek love. Yeah, not too graphically. Like, that part is not too graphic. There's some graphic things that happen in mm. there, though. Good to know. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my recommendation for this week, I technically already mentioned earlier, 
but my recommendation is going to be Sukiyaki Western Django. Uh, <laughs> oh, this movie. It is a film by uh, Japanese director Kashi Miike, where he did a spaghetti western with an entirely Japanese cast that he forced to speak completely in English. Oh, dear. Oh, no. Some of the cast members had to literally learn their lines phonetically because they spoke no English. God, that's got to be hard to act that way. Otherwise, like, it's an over-the-top, but very, very faithful spaghetti western. A gunslinger goes to this old west town where there's already two gangs feuding against each other, and he pits them against each other even more for his own gang, for his own gain, and just because they're kind of assholes. It's like 80% Yojimbo, if you've ever seen that, which means it's about 70% of Fistful of Dollars. Mm. <laughs> There's only about four Western stories ever made, and they just found different variations of them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes about, Samurai. Yeah, it's about 60% <laughs> the original Django, and it's about 30% the original War, the, the historical War of the Roses. Um, the movie... It's so fucking insane. Uh, an amazing... Visually, it's an anachronistic soup. Uh, the buildings all look like classic old west with like the rotting boards and falling apart and like swing open doors and stuff until you actually look at the buildings and the architecture is all uh like authentic jidaigeki era uh samurai fucking <laughs> japanese architecture the gunslinger comes in he looks perfectly out of the old west the gangs are all a mix of, like, contemporary and Old West. And, like, weird, like, 80s punk almost with some of the gang members. There's a kid in it who's just straight up wearing a hoodie at one part. <laughs> Not on purpose. He was just there that day. Uh... You find, but with all of this, then you find out the kid's dad's... The kid's father's name is Akira, and you find out that he was named after the anime. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that might be the thing that sold me on this movie overall. <laughs> um, uh, there's only two lines set in Japanese and only two actors in it that aren't Japanese. One of both of those things is Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um, oh, my God. It's one of my favorite things to watch in the world. It's so... It's so authentically spaghetti western while being so over the top and extravagant and just a feast for your eyes. Blood splatters on the matte painting backdrops of some scenes. <laughs> <laughs> Watch Sukiyaki Western Django. Okay. Also, don't be turned off by Tarantino. He just shows up and Takashi Miike is like five times better director than he is. So <laughs> talking to you directly there, are you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> But in the meantime, come back and see us next week. Cece will be returning to see us again. And we will, I mean, she and I are going to see each other before then. But, you know, uh, <laughs> to talk about the movie version or the TV show version of Good Omens. The miniseries. The miniseries. We didn't watch it all in one night when it came out because uh, I had to work at 6 a.m. the next morning and she was legitimately mad at me. Cece, thanks so much for joining us, my love. Seeing why I do this every week, hopefully. <laughs> um, in the meantime, we're your generals of nerdery. I'm Zach. I'm Tyler. Dismissed! Dismissed.
Hi everybody, General Tyler here. If you like the show, please hit subscribe however you're listening to us right now. Also, if you could rate and review us however you're listening to us right now, or preferably over at Apple Podcasts, we would super appreciate it, as the whole world is around on algorithms, and we want to be all up in them, getting our voice out to more places. Uh, also, I mean, tell your friends, we always appreciate that. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us, ask us questions, give us comments, email us generalnerderypod at gmail.com. You can also contact us through our website, www.generalnerdcast.com. While you're there, check out all of our back catalog or click the links up at the top as we are part of the Earverm Podcast Network. Uh, Go check out all of our sister shows. We're involved with most of them, so if you already like listening to us talk, it might be in your best interest. And if you want to check out everything from the network, head over to earverm.com, E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M.com. We'd super appreciate it. Love you all. Have a good one.